Hello, my fellow Brapintonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler, and joining me on this two-wheeled adventure is the pontiff of petrol, Mr. Shaheen Alvandi. Hello, sir. I like that it changes every time. I wasn't expecting that. I don't know why that made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of got you. Pontificating pontiff of petrol. We've got the pop filters on. Yeah, that's why we have pop filters. I kept thinking these are spit filters, but they're pop filters. I don't pop so, very much. So the, the 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 flat thing is the pop, uh, and then the the little foam thing is the spit. That's the spit filter. Yeah. Do you have to like wring it out once in a while? Gross. Probably. I don't think I ever have. Well, mine's full of whiskey, so it makes you frisky. Already clean. <laughs> it's self. It's self cleaning. Self cleaning. Hey, Brilliant. congratulations on recording without being sick. This is. Air high five. Air high five. Boom. This is our eighth uh, recording. And, eighth. Uh, no, and well, yeah. Well, we had one that was a two enthusiast recording. This is our eighth brap talk. Eighth brap talk recording. Yeah. yeah. Where I think the last three, we were somewhat ill in yes. some state of sickness. Yes. And I don't mean mentally sickness. That's every day. That's every day. This every is like episode. hacking up. Just, oh. Well, it helps that we took like two or three weeks off. So apologies to our listeners. We missed you we've guys. We've been in absentee. We, we've been out doing things though. So this is actually a two-part show. I, I, I'm predict- predicting the show is two hours long. Uh, and then we're going to record after this another one, Shaheen. That's also going to probably be about two hours long. Come at me, man. I got I got a lot of yakking to do. Yeah. So we're going to catch people up. Um, the bottle of whiskey's out, not just the glass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. We're in for trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing the dinner's coming halfway through. Thank goodness for your lady. Yeah. Um. Blah, 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 blah. She's a sweetie. That's yeah. why we're going to go do the Valentine's thing. Oh, Coda Kitty's already attacking something. Yeah. If you thought Coda Kitty left the podcast, you'd be no sorely way. mistaken. This, this today's podcast brought to you by... Meow. Meow. Um, I, there's so much to talk about. I don't know where to begin. So I think we're going to Tarantino this one. Because well, are we going to go backwards? We're going to go backwards. We're going to do uh, a Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I'm doing the music. Oh, I got yes yeah, the. You got that one? Yeah, I don't know what it's called. It, it sounded a little more Deliverance, but it's whatever oh. that Pulp Fiction song is. You are mighty pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh because, unbeknownst to you, I've had probably like five or six Pulp Fiction quote references come up in my life in the last <laughs> two three days. So to, hear, to see that continue, I'm just like, are you guys punking me? Is Can that we do that in on? here? Say Ducati again, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Drink. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of show. Oh, it's going to be that kind of show. Mm. So so I, I don't want to start talking about this, but we did just have the one show here where we're literally 24 hours off of that. Jensen, what is the one show for those who don't know? The one show is life. It is in Portland. So it's, ice cold life. It is, I would say it's one of the biggest motorcycle custom shows in the United States. There's Handbuilt, Mama Tried, I'm probably forgetting one or two, and then the one show. Um, started here by, by our, our own Tor Drake, owner and proprietor of CC Motorcycles, and then KTM CC, and, uh, and then the one show. I never know whether to pronounce his name Thor or Tor. Well, if you're Scandinavian, it's Tor. Tor, yeah. The H is silent. Uh, I believe he's a Norwegian brother, so he's okay. He's okay in my book. Norwegian's <laughs> all right. Swedes, hmm. we got a little blood blood thing with the Swedes. Finns, just get the fuck right out. You're not Scandinavian. Finns have nothing to say. They're the quietest just, bunch of people in the world. Uh, in fact, Western our, our friend that just went to Finland came back and said, I think their motto should be Finland. Don't make a fuss. Yeah. They just don't that. care. They're There's still- a lot of Russian influence with that. So uh-huh. we kind of like us Danes, we look a, little, look a little down on it. Ice- Icelanders are okay. They're cool. 
they're cool. It's whatever. They're cool. They kind of do their own thing. Don't fuck with the Vikings, man. <laughs> Icelandics are amazing people. <clears throat> no, they're all good. Um, anyone from the Scandinavian area is all right in my book. Tor's a wacky guy. I like him. I like what he's doing. He's I mean, he had such a vision and he made it happen. So anyway, so Tor put together this show. And I remember it's, when it started. I don't this think is the, I, this is the tenth year, I believe. Yeah, I don't think I was at one show number one. I think I was at one show number two or three, and that one, whatever one. Let's put it this way: I went the one show I first went to was the original Snowpocalypse show. Oh wow! And I came up. Uh, I actually brought up Alicia Elfin's bike, uh, better known as the Moto Lady. We trailered that up mm-hmm. through like Pandora. a blizzard. It took us literally. 16 hours to go what should have been like a nine hour 10 hour trip holy moly i mean we when we came up there was cars just like scattered all over the side of the roads it was really bad there's really bad ice portland <laughs> shut down there's just <laughs> portland got like a foot of snow uh which is you know it sounds silly because it's a pacific northwest city but we're not really where this is not a place this. prepared for snow and the problem is it's not just snow it's ice yeah you get a it, lot of rain and it freezes overnight that's the thing and we yeah. don't clear the snow so then the snow that does fall turns into ice within 24 i saw hours. a meme about portland and the snow that it made me laugh it was something along the lines of portland the whitest city and country in fact so white that when it rains they don't even fucking put salt in the ground they just don't want any flavor on anything yeah so we don't put salt here well we did the, we're starting to because they're realizing like hey like you know that thing that the rest of the country does flavor saves actually works yeah sorry salmon fuck your car um so yeah we had a little we had a little tease of snow on this we'll get we'll get to that yep i want to back up in time and start with the standard shaheen tell me what you've been up to i've been traveling a lot but not for motorcycles it's been for my regular day job i know and you know you should quit i'm done because if i'm gonna travel it's gonna be for motorcycles damn it yeah uh yeah so i went to vegas had some spring-like weather and then i went to seattle and had some seattle-like weather and then decided to go all the way to baltimore maryland where i'd never been before which by the way very cool city if you've never been be more cool i like it yep super neat somehow very approachable and affordable even though it sits basically between dc and new york yeah two of the most expensive cities i've ever been to uh but yeah so just a lot of traveling and working and missing you immensely Baltimore's what put the, the the twelve o'clock wheelie dank woolies on the on the map, man. Is, is that, That's is, the home is, of the is, dank woolie. Really? Yeah. So the nat, the natty b dank woolies uh, over there. Yeah, that's the whole um, what do you call it? Twelve o'clock boys. Oh, they're they're from Baltimore. Neat. Yeah. I'm gonna go to New York City in uh, in a couple of days, two days from now. So I'll I'll probably hang out with some New York uh, hooligans. I'm oh, hoping yeah. to. It's for work, but I'm gonna take some time off because I turned forty while I'm out there. So. I'm hoping to celebrate it by getting just crazy drunk by with some motorcyclist out there. Sounds like a plan. I think so. Sounds solid. Yeah. So no no motorcycling things? No, not not as exciting as you anyway. I mean, I've just done my regular dirt biking and taking my big bike around and showing off. Uh, I was, you know, actually, I was at I was at our favorite dealership here and showing some people how to get ready to go camping with just like the most minimal stuff. That's so cool. I did a little bit of show and tell. Uh, using my favorite bags and my my very minimalist approach of how to pack. People have a tendency of overpacking. Oh, yeah. And so what I've always told people is pack what you think you want to take camping with you and then unpack it all and then take half of that shit away because you're never going to use it. One pair of underwear can be worn four days. Seriously. So actually, it's funny. You, you joke about this, but anytime I go motorcycle camping or tripping or anything, I'm tripping. Um I basically end up wearing my motorcycle gear and then whatever underwear is underneath there. 
nine out of 10 times, you're going to end up somewhere where you can wash that stuff. So you take basically the pair you're wearing and another pair with you. And then when you wash that other pair that you've already worn, you just put it on your uh, bungee cord in the back of the bike and let it kind of flap in the wind and dry up and boom, you got clean clothes again. You don't have to overpack. Yeah. I've got a dry bag that has a mesh, like like a little mesh topper. And that's where I stick the the wet laundry. And then while I'm I'm riding, that'll, you know. Yeah. You get get that fresh air with a bit of diesel fumes in yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, you get a little bit of road grime when you do it, but <laughs> come on. It's better than the BO. I mean, it's kind of like the known. We've always joked around about it. If you're going to go motorcycle camping or touring, you got to smell a little. So maybe invest in some soap because, you know, it's okay to shower. I don't mean I smell really good. <laughs> I don't want to brag about like weird things, but One I smell really good. the best smelling Middle Easterners uh, you're I ever going to meet. I've often been told I smell really good. Men, women, dogs Dude, love smelling me. Why do you think I hug you for like a second too long every time you I hug you? My, yeah, you want my, my musk rubbed yeah. off on you. Take it all in. Hashtag T-Man. Ah, you smell so good when you're awake. Is that weird? No, I'm cool. Okay, good. Fair. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like being touched, but the rest of it, it's cool. You don't like being touched, nope. which is for weird that you're friends with me and my wife and we're like the touchiest, huggiest people you've ever met. Yep, kills me inside. <laughs> just kills me inside. I love it when like people I don't know very well like give me like hugs. I'm just like... <laughs> On, on multiple levels, you don't know how much this is bothering me. I like watching you get nervous or angry or squirmy or all of the above when somebody you don't know reaches in your plate. No, never take food <laughs> off my plate. Guys, never, if you ever, ever want to lose a finger, just reach into plate. Jensen's plate, especially if he doesn't know you. Even if he knows you, he looks at you like, a little growl comes out of him like, don't you fucking touch my shit. Unless we've exchanged bodily fluids, do not touch any food on my plate. Which is why I keep trying to hug you a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Just get into that first base and then you got plate privileges. <laughs> So the one moto show, it's no apocalypse. <laughs> no, uh, that's that's in the second hour of the show, I think. Oh <laughs> uh, man, we got a lot to talk about because I've been busy. Um, pretty much finished the Kramer. That basically that killed me. That thing looks beautiful. Thank you. It looks gorgeous. It looks way better in person, even though the wheels are the weirdest color I've ever seen. I think it's called carbon, carbon, carbon fiber, <laughs> carbon fiber. They're they're awesome. Um, yeah, I'd say it's like ninety five percent done. I got to figure out. There's an exhaust we got to put on it that should have been on it, but we had a little snafu with that. But that's okay. I think actually tomorrow we'll get it we'll get it installed, which is rad. Um, then we got to sort some stuff out on the brakes, and we got to figure out a wheel spacer, and then I got to put logos on it. I got to get my I don't have a race number yet, so I got to figure that out. And then we've got you know sponsor logos and AR logos and Brap Talk logos. Nice, nice. All the things. So I'm hoping you'll help me with that. I totally will help yeah. you. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's I'd say it's like ninety five percent there, and we had it out. Um, unfortunately, not in the one show, but we at least got to put it on display at Moto Corsa. Yep, it had a lot so. of uh, thumbs ups. Yeah, yeah, people seem to like it, so that's always good when you work really hard at something. Yeah, um, definitely crashing that bike. Oh, I hope you don't. It's so pretty. You know it's going to happen. Uh, First scratch is the hardest. You're replaceable, but that color. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm disposable. <laughs> you're just another Jensen Beeler. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was good to get that, get that done. Uh, got some, as we alluded to, some Rotobox. Sent me some Those tasty carbon fiber so wheels. Those so tasty. Oh, I need, so I weighed, I weighed the front and rear. It's five pounds and nine pounds. And that includes the cush drive and the sprocket. I think the box that came in is heavier. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but that was the thing. So when I saw that, I was out of town when they got delivered. And I saw the UPS thing and it was like 13 pounds. And I was like, oh man, did they only send one? Fuck, they forgot a wheel. Is that only one box? <laughs> Shoot, I hope. I hope. So I'm like texting my, my neighbor and be like, hey, is it one box or two? He's like, oh, it's only one box. I'm like, how big is that box? 
Did you make your neighbor take out a measuring tape for you? Well, I was just like eyeballing. I was just like, how, how, like, is it two feet tall? Is well, it one foot tall? Can you go inside, grab your ruler? Yeah, I just need, like, <laughs> I was having, like, a, a panic attack because it was also, like, three days before the show. And I, and I wasn't in town. I was in, Ooh. I was in LA for reasons I'll tell you in a second. It's a little bit, a little bit of a heart attack, but yeah, Rotobox came through. The, the wheels are super light. I got to take the uh, stock ones yep. and measure and weigh them. Oh, yeah. And I'd be curious to see what just, just, uh basic wheel weight differences is but that's gonna be a bit uh, that you're i think your your transition from you know chicane to chicane is going to be i wish you had had a chance to do a back-to-back well, i mean i've ridden the bike before i know but like fresh but yeah that's 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 tough well i so mean you still can if kramer can bring one out to the track for you and like ride it side by side for you just to kind of get a little so the carbon wheels are going to be my dry wheels and since oh. we're in Portland, the the cast wheels that came with it, because yeah. I got the S model, are going to be my rain wheels. Okay. Because you want like a little bit more inertia when it's wet. You don't want the, the mm-hmm. thing to slide as easily. So it actually works out really well. Um, so we'll be able to kind of see that. So you got the wheels by Rotobox. Rotobox. Thank you. Um, they came. So oh, I should have... Next time we're at the bike, I should show you. It literally, they stamped the date on when it was made. What? They made those things to order. It's like it's like fresh roasted coffee like, like, like january 2019 built these wheels were woven. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, that was very nice of them to the fit and finish on them that. is obnoxiously good it just looks so good i don't know how they build those things but they're like i'm thinking of older yeah bst wheels and, for instance that yeah. look a little questionable older dimags look yeah, super dimags. <laughs> but these so, things look solid truthfully that's the reason i went with them really because okay. i've i've seen other carbon fiber wheels made before and I'm just really impressed with the way Rotobox does does it. Like the way they 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 build them, the way the finished product looks like, it, it looks top notch. And some of the other brands, not so much. What do you think the bike weighs now? Good question. So it was it was 280 on the nose with like two three gallons of fuel in it. And I'd say now, all things considered, it's going to be closer to like two. I think we're when we're done. It's going to be like 270. How's Project Six Pack going? There's going, a reason I asked this question because I feel like you really have like a well. one-to-one ratio of you and the going bike, really at least well. with me, anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a D Air suit, which is a little heavier. Oh shit, yeah. And let's say like I don't lose any weight, it will be really close to one to one. Like one to one. No, it won't. I mean, it won't be. I think with the suit, I'm trying to think how much a suit normally weighs. It's like 20 pounds or so. With the D Air, it's gonna be. 25 the rest of the gear i mean yeah i'm gonna probably be like 250 if i don't lose any weight with gear on i kind of want you to not lose any weight because then we can also do a sticker that says one to one one to one that that would be that should be like your little nickname or we just go all out replace every bolt with titanium <laughs> carbon fiber fairings and like that's the Get thing as close every as pound i lose the bike has <laughs> that's to lose. right it has to it has to lose with you it was really cool. So Rotobox now standard sends the bikes or the, the bikes. They're sending me a whole bike. Sends the wheels with titanium bolts. Wow. Which I didn't I didn't realize until we had to mount them up. So we ended up having actually a clearance issue with the rear wheel. The front wheel bolts right up. It's a KTM 1290 front end. Yep. Piece of cake. Rear end, not so much. It's a KTM 690 wheel. It's a five and a half inch width wheel. Okay. But there's some cool things about the Kramer. Like they should really publicize this more. Um, so, so it's a good thing they get. I they got my hands on one because I can do it for them. <laughs> so on the swing arm, there's like these little lips on the inside yeah. of it. There's like a little ridge. On the left-hand side, it's a straight edge ridge that follows the length of the swing arm. 
On the right-hand side, it's like a half circle. And what that is, is it's designed to catch the wheel when you pull the axle out. So the, so the wheel has captive uh, wheel spacers. So they, they go inside well, the wheel. That's kind of cool. It just sits there if you take the axle out. Yeah. So if you pull the axle out, it falls into these little lips and gets held there. Downside, the flange head bolts that Rotobox sent me are too tall and hit the lip on the left-hand side. So we had to go find some button head bolts. Did you stay. find them then? And we did at the hardware store. So I had to replace a beautiful titanium bolt with this huge stainless steel bolt. And like legitimately, <laughs> like you put like the five titanium bolts in one hand and the five stainless steel bolts in the other hand, you're like, that's that's at least a pound. It's it's ridiculous that's how much crazy the way. difference between some bolts. I mean, they're big fat bolts too. They're they're M10s. They're yeah. huge. They're huge. In fact, they're so huge, I'm having a really hard time finding a titanium version of them. Um, that isn't a flange head. I need I need a button head. Yeah. So if anyone knows where they're at, I need an I need an M10 with a, a 1.5 millimeter um, thread pitch and a 25 millimeter length. Just just throwing that out there. If anyone's got a titanium just, just, bolt guy, hit us hook, up. A, hook a brother up. They're probably going to be like 20 bucks a pop. But um, yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like I was like, wow, that really makes a difference. So we got to finish up a wheel wheel spacer, and then those things are good to go. Right now it rolls, but you wouldn't be able to 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 gas it. And then I've got to do some little knick knacks and. and do you have it painted or do you have it uh, vinyl wrapped? Painted, painted. Our friend Sean, Sean Win, Sean Win, Mister Sean Win, Win Win Win, uh, painted it up for me. Like truthfully, like like shout out to Sean, yeah, and Mark at Motocorsa because between the two of them, I don't think this would have gotten done. Mark, Mark loves getting into these projects. He just did his own little bike, too, and he goes a little mad scientist. Yeah, he shit. had a bike in the one show. If you saw um, uh, Tricked Out, Panigale 959 with mm -hmm. a snake skeleton on the side of it, that was his. But he kept, he kept me sane through the process, and Sean Sean got, Sean got did the heavy lifting, man. He got he did the he painted the frame. He painted the bodywork. He helped me sort out a bunch of things. He, he drove it up. You know, from Independence to here, which is like a solid like forty five minute drive and back. Drive. So yeah, big big shout outs to him, uh, those two, and then obviously, uh, so Pirelli sent me some tires, so they're gonna. What'd you end up with? They sent me their Superbike slicks. Okay. Um, what is there a specific compound that you went with? Uh, I believe it is an SC one front and SC two rear. So that'll be that'll be cool. That's the their stock fitment for Kramer, so that'll make sense. Um, I just saw actually it's a story I need to get out on the site. They probably just came out with a superbike slick for the 300 class bikes, Whoa, 300 so CC like, class bikes. Oh, that's awesome! Everybody's been saying they want something like that. Yeah, so it's crazy. So it's like a good job, Prell. You're listening. It's like a 140 70. It's crazy size. Wow! But it, it so it's designed specifically for the small displacement, low horsepower bikes. I'm actually kind of wondering if that would be a decent tire. I wouldn't want to run a 140 on the Kramer. No, I feel like the, what are you, a 160 in the back right now? 160, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you want to go. Yeah, that's a lot more power coming down on your bike. Yeah, it's more power. But it, it does make me interested. like, huh? Because the front's a 11080. It's 11070. I'd have to look up the size. It's a weird, it's not a 120. Yeah, that's a weird one. And that's usually the thing is like if you're running like a Ninja 250, Ninja 300, I don't know if the Cowie 400 guys are going to end up doing this, but usually the hot setup is a 120 on the front and the rear. You use two front tires basically. And it's basically because you just want the side-to-side -side transition. Yeah. You're not caring so much about contact patch because you're you're playing with like, you know, 40 horsepower, if that. So, yeah, it's cool to see that they're seeing that that's a big thing in the space. Obviously, they're part of the World Superbike Series, which has a Supersport 300 class. So, 
Um, the development comes from there, which is which is good. But I think it's just smart seeing how big that area is. Like that's that's where most people are going to start their racing. That's where like the hot and you're seeing like there's a lot of bikes out. Every brand basically uh, has a bike in that space. You know, all yeah. four the all four Japanese brands have something in there. KTM has something in there. You think BMW's um, going to get into that scene? I mean, they got the 310. You know what? We keep waiting for what would be considered a G310 double R to show yeah. up. Every year, that's my like ICMO, like bike I expect to see. And every year, it doesn't show up. We saw that TVS, who they're partnered with, yeah. came out with the Apache 310. Um, So like clearly, like the platform's there. That bike looks rad, too. Uh, I wonder if BMW's just thinking in terms of sales, it may not... You know, if if somebody's buying a small commuter bike, they probably want commuter uh, comfort level. I don't know, man. Like, just from the sheer of it, like, there's a lot of people that get on 250s, and now it's 300s, and now it's kind of turned into this, like, 300 to 400 range. It is funny to watch it grow. Yeah, there needs to be kind of a consensus, but I feel that's part of what the industry is doing right now, where we have, like, kind of a lack of consensus on displacement sizes. Right. You know, you look at, like, the 300 class, and I don't think anyone's 300 cc's anymore except for Honda. Yeah, I think they really are. I mean, well, what's the Yamaha, the R3? 321. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> right? And then the BMW is 313, I believe. Watch, uh, Honda by 2020 is going to be bigger than a 300. I think they have to just, be. Everyone's doing it. It's, 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 I get it, but it's so ridiculous to me. Like, there is a segment. You guys built it, and you just keep going above air. And I, I guess mean, that's their way of getting more power out of those little bikes without... You know, having them rev them out too much and deal with um, emissions. I mean, that's the game, right? Like Kawasaki did it with the six three six. Ducati's doing it with the Panigale mm-hmm. V four, which is an eleven eleven oh three, and we're seeing um, Aprilia follow them, follow them down that path. And I believe that's either a ten seventy eight or a ten eighty seven. My dyslexia gets me screwed up on that. Um, and but that's the thing. Like, I, I think the Cavi four hundred is a great example of. So we made a bike. It has more displacement, more right. torque, more horsepower, and less weight. So if we can do that. Yeah, I mean, it's for the street. There are says, no real who, who rules there. Yeah, you're getting more bike. Yeah. So, you know, why are we living by these kind of like I imagine if they had, you know, just goals? for race purposes, they would have to maintain a certain size limit. No, well, that's what we're seeing. Like in the in the Supersport 300 classes, like what they're ending up doing is doing, coming up with these most convoluted balance you know performance balancing algorithms that just are so prone for for fuckery <laughs> and that's what we motorcyclists love the most well that was the, fuckery yeah that was the complaint when anna carrasco won the won the championship it's like oh well she was on the the bike that you know they changed the formula and, blah, 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 and you're like or you're just upset a girl beat you yeah that's pretty you much know? you know that's uh, it seems to happen in racing a lot there's all kinds of excuses i've de- i mean i've definitely seen it before so, um, yeah, cool to see that there's a tire in that space. I'm, I'm stoked. I think we're going to see other brands follow suit. It wasn't too long ago that I remember Dunlop came out with a press release that they were making slicks specifically for the 600 class. Hmm. That was like one or two years ago. So I think people are realizing not everyone's going racing with superbikes, and actually we're seeing probably more racing in the lower classes than the the bigger classes. Superbikes get more expensive. It's Yeah, exactly. This is cheaper and more fun probably. And, yeah. You know, it, it sort of evens the playing field a little bit. And that's the thing, like, you know, we're talking to probably a little bit, it's like, you know, I'm probably going to get away with a front tire for every two weekends, so that's four race days, and a rear tire every weekend, so that's two race days, and that's doing, like, three or four races a, a day, whereas on, like, a superbike, man, like, Forget it. one weekend would be, like, 
two fronts Ooh, and easily. five rears oh or whatever God. that would be. And you're like, man, that's a thousand bucks in tires, right? That's, that's more than a thousand bucks in tires. Let's get honest. I, I always, I always kind of crack up at how people don't recognize the cost of, you know, tires when it comes to these amateur level racing and it's got to come out of your pocket because most people that talk about it, most of our listeners are at best track day attendees. Yeah. And you know, on a track day, you're even in a group, you're not riding at that same level as a race. You're, I mean, it's, it's such a vast difference. It's unbelievable. Well, you might not be Shaheen, but other people might be. I don't know. <laughs> That's my tough guy, Doc. That's my tough guy voice. I tell you what, when I go out there, I give him my all. Boy, when I'm power sliding through the turns, I give no rubber, no I quarter. I in my pants and on the tarmac. Yeah. yeah. And then I drink a light beer. Light beer. Like a Budweiser. I like racing. Rubbing is racing. Or an apple teeny, depends how I feel. <laughs> um. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. I was doing the budget for for my racing this year, and like legitimately, like tires and fuel are like ninety percent of it, and they they account for like a fifty fifty split of that ninety percent. You know, if I had to buy tires every week, and just for the Kramer, like it's gonna be two three grand for the yeah. year. And I can't imagine what a bigger bike would be like. You know that that would be probably why you want to go race a, a Ninja 250 or Ninja 300 or, you know, 300 CC class, because at least you could probably cut like another 500 bucks off that budget on tires and probably another 500 in fuel. Maybe we can start one of those Patreon pages for your racing purposes. No, update people no, no. With it. I'm not, I'm not a big, like GoFundMe Patreon guy. I really have like, like a philosophical issue with that. If, if other people want to go do that, that's fine. It's just not for you. I'm just not for me. Like I'm not a big, like, handout do, do you feel like do you feel like you owe somebody then if you if they give you something no i'm just i yeah like i said i just have a philosophical issue with it all right um so but like like i've mentioned before pirelli's on board with my season they're obviously getting uh, a lot of exposure out of it that that's the that's the freebie i'm into it's like yeah okay like you don't necessarily have to do contingency or whatever but like i'm gonna give you something in return for what you're you're giving me you know, it's like, you're going to give me product, but you're going to get a lot of exposure. Obviously, we're talking about it on the podcast. Right. Um, and so I'm, we're going to do I'm a, hoping that you'll be, you know, able to give good, honest feedback on those tires as well. Because, I I mean, having ridden with you, you're going to ride the shit out of those tires. I mean, there's, it's it's two ways. Like, this is this is actually a really, like, interesting conversation about, about journalism, right? Um, and I had a few of these conversations just last week over the course of the one show and, and some of the press launches I was on because you have a lot of time to talk. So So part of it is, like, like I seeked out Pirelli to, to to sponsor my season. I'm even the quotes in there, sponsor. I'm not getting paid or anything, right? <laughs> but but I am going to get product, right? And part of that's like, so I seek them out. So that means on a certain level, like I've already done the mental calculus on like what product I would want to use. Because I do have at least a Rolodex of people I could call and say like, hey, I need this. Can you help a brother out? Right. And then we can talk about like stories and, and ideas and what I'm doing and, and what return they would get on that investment or whatever. So there's an element of that. But, like, my whole thing with Asphalt and Rubber is just, like, I don't even have this cover. I won't say a name of a publication, but, like, someone internally was like, yeah, we just got this directive that we have to cover this brand in this way because they're, like, 50% of our ad budget. Well, that's, at that point, called an advertisement. Right. And you're sitting there just like, so your editorial is bought and paid for. And that's, right. that was part of the response of what I started Asphalt and Rubber on, where I sat there and I was like, you know what? One, there's no one really in the digital space doing that journalism the way i think it should be done and two like the perception of the established brands had dropped so low because they'd given up 
their subscription money for advertising money and they became beholden to their advertisers. Like I'm a response to motorcycle journalism going awry. And I think there's a lot of other people that are in the space for that same reason or have been in that space for the same reason. And at the end of the day, like I still consider myself an industry outsider, even though I'm probably not, but I came into it as an outsider. I didn't know anyone. I didn't work in a dealership. I didn't race. I didn't work in an OEM. Uh, I didn't go, I wasn't a mechanic. I was just an enthusiast right. that liked bikes and just started talking about bikes. And I'd you know, ridden a lot of miles and done a lot of things. And I kind of been in the media space because I came from owning motorcycle forums. And so I kind of had like a, an in, but not really. And it's still the same way I look at it today. Like if I'm, if my reader isn't my main stakeholder, I'm doing my job wrong. So like my job always at the end of the day is to call a spade a spade. Because the second I stop doing that, one, I'm not, I'm no longer the publication I want to be. And two, I'm not doing a service to my readers. And my guiding light for my readers is like, what would I want? So I'm not doing a service to myself either. Right. So it's that same thing. So like, yeah, you know, if, if I'm going to go down the front straight and my tire explodes, I'm going to say my tire exploded. Um, well, you're the kind of guy, if that happened to you, you're going to look at why it may have exploded. And you well, know, before yeah, you, you start pointing like fingers, a, you're going to look at, you know, pressure educated and, point of view, right. and like what's going on. Like, but that's what you need from a journalist, right? You need that journalistic integrity that allows you to not allows you, but it, it lets you as a reader say, cool, I have faith in, in this brand of journalism that will give me the straight answer about what I'm looking for. Right. Uh, I, you know, I think the important thing, and this is the most important thing, like the journal, journalism hat, right? So one, I think it's important for me to disclose like, Hey, you know, I've done a bunch of track days on Pirelli's. Pirelli's a tire I know the best. This is the tire that I chose for my own little calculus to go ride and all that and, and put that out front so you can say like, hey, Jensen's Jensen's team Pirelli right now. Right. And at least go into that knowing like, hey, when I read a story and it's really pro Pirelli, maybe that's Jensen's bias. Or I read a story that's like anti some other brand, maybe that's Jensen's Pirelli bias or whatever that is. So at least I can front load it so you can make your own educated decision. Right. And that's always been my biggest thing is to make sure at least like, like, like Ducati, like I'm a Ducati owner. You know, we put that, I make no qualms about it. If you see a pro Ducati story, you can sit there and be like, well, that's just Jensen being pro Ducati. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, I think out of all the brands that have given me the most grief, Ducati ranks at the higher <laughs> end of it because, because, but, but that's part of it too. That's because a passionate that, bunch. Well, it's because I would say as a owner of the bikes, you're going to get, I'm, I'm more vested in seeing that brand do well so i'm going to be more critical of them and it's the same thing like i think i'm harder on american brands than i am like say a european brand or a japanese brand yeah because i'm an american and i want to see like the american brands do well i want to make sure that competition improves the breed there's no free lunch because i want to make sure you're the best and it's the same like like i have that same issue with like startups where sometimes i think i'm too easy on startup companies because i come from an entrepreneurial background i know what it takes to start a business i do think you have to kind of protect the smaller kind of fledgling businesses to help them grow. And then they kind of hit this tipping point where you, then you got to start putting them through the pressure cooker to make sure the right things are growing. Like you got to give them a chance yep. and then you got to make them, you know, kind of jump through some hoops. It's for some reason I'm thinking about like the fifth element scene where they're, they're taking like the three like DNA molecules of Lilu and, like, and putting her in the machine and they're like building her like we, little slice by slice. And we bombard her with UV light and that forces her to grow skin. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to force you to grow skin. I'm the UV light. You're going to turn to Lilu Dallas and take over the world. You're the fifth element. You are love. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the thing, right? And, and a lot of, a lot of listeners and readers forget that they forget that it's your job to be critical. So, so this is where I was going. I, I totally lost my train of thought and you, you, you sound me back. The most important thing for me is like, I can sit here and say like, Hey, I'm going to go race Pirelli's. I think Pirelli's are great tires. 
I want to, I want to, that's what, that's what I personally chose for myself. Right. I think that they're the correct choice for that bike too. That's the most important thing. Um, but that being said, if I hop on a Michelin, if I hop on a Bridgestone, if I hop on a Dunlop and I think it's good, the journalist in me has to say that I think it's good. Absolutely. And that's, that's the, that's the intent. Like it's, I got no problem saying a Pirelli is a good tire or I think Pirelli is a great tire for my racing program, but you get into trouble if you start saying, but that tire over there isn't, or that one's not, as long as you're calling it the way it is, I don't have any issue. And that's, that's the part where I got into it a while ago with a colleague once. Cause they got upset. Actually, I think it was over Pirelli story. Yeah, oh. it was it was about the Pirelli Diablo Rosso Corso two tire, and I was like, per- personally, I think it's the best sport bike tire on the market. And he was getting all up. Uh, this colleague was getting upset that I said that. He's like, how can you say such a thing? It's such a intangible thing. How much time you spend? I was like, well, actually, I've put three thousand miles on this tire. I put four thousand miles on this rival tire. Put you know two thousand miles on that other rival tire. Like I've ridden all these tires for a really long time. And I've got all experience. But the more important thing is, like, he was upset at the superlative. And I was like, if you're calling a spade a spade, you shouldn't be afraid of the superlative. Nope. Because if you're calling it the way it is, there, there is going to be a best, or there's going to be at least a best for the situation, or there's going to be a, a group of tires that are that are good, you know, and then there's maybe some that aren't. It's the same thing with bikes where, like, you know, some bikes are, a lot of bikes now that come out are really good. I got no problem saying a bike is good. There's some journalists that, like, have to find something wrong to, like, feel like that's authentic. It's like, well... Truthfully, like 90% of the bikes that come from OEMs now are good. They're pretty well sorted. We've kind of figured out fuel injection. We've kind of figured out ABS brakes. We've kind of gotten manufacturing, you know, quality control pretty down pat. You know, it doesn't really matter if a bike's made in Japan or Thailand because, you know, the the bike that comes out that lands on my dealer's door is pretty much the same. Yeah, the quality control is going to be one and the same, basically, from that manufacturer. Which is why when a bike is bad, it stands out. So right. obviously, like, oh, my God, that's so, my, that's well, so I know, bad. I think as a, as a longtime reader of, of various motor journalism magazines, I always assume that the people that are doing these writings... And this is not a safe assumption, but I always assume that they knew exactly what it is they're talking about. So when they're being overly critical about something, I assume that it was at their level and their level was so above my level that I probably wouldn't notice it. But, you know, it, it, it kind of translates to at some level at a weird, I don't know, it makes some people kind of think that that's the final word. And so I remember as a retailer selling motorcycles, you know, people would come in and say things like, Oh, this XYZ motorcycle is the best one because I read it on such and such, and that's what the, you know, the the editor had to say about it. And it's like, well, the editor was saying that one nitpicky thing about the bike, but I guarantee you, as an average rider, if you get on this thing, you probably won't notice these things because you're not going to push it to that level. It kind of depends, like on the segment, like like when I hear you talking like that, I think about the superbike segment, right? Which is which is really is like. If you're a B level rider, if you're like a B group rider at a track day, right, you're not going to notice the difference between Never. these bikes. No. Maybe there's some personal preference between. Dude, I'm how at A uh, level, and I barely notice some of these yeah. things. Like I have to pay really good attention to that. There's, there's, it's, and and even you can get to a different level. Like I can think of a couple conversations I've had on press launches where we kind of go around the table and talk about bikes, and and one guy will be like, "I like an Aprilia Osprey Four. I like a Yamaha R1. I like a Ducati Panigale." Uh, v4 or v twin or whatever it is and you can kind of have those debates because i think at a certain point it is going to become rider preference a lot of people like r1s and you and i talked that one time i'm just not an r1 guy no and and i'll be you know more than willing to raise my hand and say like i've had a really a lot of bad experiences with that brand they've not been they've been a fairly hostile brand to asphalt and rubber and that might taint my opinion so factor that into that calculus but 
You know, if it's my money, I'm going to go buy an RSV4. If it's money, no object, I'm going to go buy a Panigale V4. But I can sit there and listen to my colleagues and be like, oh, I, well, this is why I like an R1. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that is a good reason to like an R1. Yep. You know, you, you like the electronics. You like the way it handles. You like the, the riding position. For me, the riding position is probably the biggest issue. I just, it, you're too I'm, big for I'm it. Big you sit on top it. of that bike. Whereas I hop on a Suzuki. Yep. And I'm, I mean, like, it's like a couch. It's great. I'm the same as you. And in, and if Suzuki could bring in the the bike in European spec instead of like the American spec where the EPA throttle thing. So, Are you listening, so, Suzuki? No, it's not their fault. It's uh, not their fault. I know. It's just so what people don't realize is the Honda and the Suzuki do this. Where after, let's say, like halfway to two-thirds through the RPM range, wide full throttle open mm-hmm. on, the, on the physical throttle is really only like 40% throttle at the throttle body. They're electronically changing how much throttle you're giving to make EPOI, EPOI, EPA noise limits. And that's why they kind of come out like 30 horsepower down, 20 horsepower down. Like the Suzuki GSXR in American trim makes like 20 or 30 horsepower a less massive difference than the Europeans. So if you can chip it and put it right back to European spec where it's going to make a true blue, you know, 200 horsepower, that's going to change some things. Yeah. Um, and maybe then I'd like the Suzuki more. That's, that's the hard part. Like for me, I really like the Suzuki a lot. I just wish it had a little bit more umph. And for probably 250 bucks at your local tuning shop, you can do it. Is that, is that easy enough to do anymore? I feel like a lot of um, dealerships are starting to kind of put the hammer down on the whole tuning thing. In California, for sure. Oregon as well. I mean, looking um, at a Ducati dealership, if you want to buy an, an aftermarket exhaust and you want to get it chipped, if you're in Ducati land, that means two options, either Akrapovich or Termi. Yeah. And that's basically, it comes down to whatever is available through the Ducati performance catalog because the dealership won't touch the other stuff. That's, I think that's the danger of having single line dealers where right. an OEM can say, hey, we're partnered with these two exhaust companies or just this one exhaust company. And if you want to be a dealer, that's the only exhaust that you can you know, touch to put the ECU on. Whereas like a multi-line has a little bit more resistance to that because they can say, hey, like, you know, your brand accounts for only 5% of my sales. I can tell you to go fuck off if mm-hmm. I want. And it's not going to be a devastating thing to my business where if you're a single brand dealer, telling a brand to go fuck off is 100% of your business. That's your, you're shutting your down. You're getting a new brand in there. Like, game over so that's tough that's a whole different can of worms um i've never really seen dealers be that way before other than the ones in california where the where the california air resources board carb will literally come in and put you out of business and and just fine you into oblivion if you do that you will not be able to buy a full system exhaust from a a licensed dealer in california i don't think you can now best weather best roads sorry can't fuck with the bike you know what like I don't know. I'm not going to like miss it unless you're on the track. Right. You're not really using it anyways. Like that's the thing. Like, do I care as a street rider if the Suzuki makes no. 180 horsepower little. instead of 200? Right. Anything over 150, in my opinion, is just wasted. People have these conversations and, and it's all based on what you or other journalists put on the paper, right? The conversation ends up being about horsepower and what am I going to buy? The R1 has this much versus the Gixxer has got this much. I mean, I think if a journalist is doing their job right, it shouldn't be about the spec sheet because anyone can go look up the spec sheets. Truthfully, I think like that's where like the media influencers versus journalists kind of differ. Where yeah. if you don't have a wide experience and you don't have a, a good grasp of what else is on the market, then you start just making spec sheet comparisons. And you see that all the time in forums. You see it on YouTube. You see, you see it in comment sections. And I think the value of a journalist is, is to say like, hey, I went and rode that bike. I can tell you what the bite, what the butt dyno is telling me. And mm-hmm. I've, and I've written two of the other bikes in that segment or three of those bikes in the other segment. And I just got off one of them or maybe it was back to back. 
So this one does this, and this one does that, and this is how they're just the same, and this is how they're different. But this one costs this much, and this one costs that, or this has this brake or this suspension or this whatever, and this one has this. So you can kind of sit there, and, and that's the value to me is, you know, that's the value that I think I'm giving my readers is at least having that knowledge and that, and that experience to be like, you know, I get to ride everything. I get to go do the thing on all the bikes. And, I, and oftentimes when I go down to a manufacturer, I'll try and hop on a bunch of different bikes while I'm there. I remember I've done that with MV. I think I've done it with Honda, Ducati. We're all just, or I'll go down to a dealership and I'll hop on every new bike just to be like, yeah, hey, I've done 20 miles on that bike. At least I have some experience that I can that I can speak to. Right. So, or like, let's say I have a press launch coming up that's on a certain type of bike. I'll make sure I try and hop on other bikes that are in that class before I go out there to, to see what's up. And I think that adds a lot of value to, to what you write. And I think, you know, there's other journalists that go to more press launches than I do that have a deeper experience that they can dwell on. And there's other journalists that show up that, you know, that's a one-off thing for them. They're not full-time or maybe they're freelance. And I think it, I think it shows. Yeah. So that's the, that's the space. I don't know how we got on this, this track. We're like an, rabbit holes we're like 45 minutes in and i don't even think we finished just one bullet point that brings up a good point though shane because i just went to the hyper motard 950 launch oh, with oh yes baby so canary islands was uh the place we did this which is both in africa and in europe sure oddly is. enough how's the weather it was actually rainy and kind of cold um we got really lucky that we kind of just missed the rain one of the i think the wave before us got pretty soaked and um our ride we 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 went up this like mountain peak it's like four thousand feet in elevation so these are just like volcanic it's a volcanic archipelago okay off it's about 60 miles west of morocco um but technically you're in spain because it's spanish territory whatever it's one of the autonomous things in the spanish government which is the same like Catalonia's like that. Ducati loves doing their releases see, in Spain. You see a lot of well, it's the it's the time of year they want. If you yeah. want to launch a bike in January, you're going to launch it in Spain or Portugal or Italy or yeah. Morocco or you're going to you know somewhere near the equator. Um, but a lot of brands do a lot of launches at the Canary Islands, but this was the first one for me. But you know, talk about a bike that you know having experience on. Like I own two Hyper Motards. Yeah, you know that was actually one of the fun things. Actually, and I almost you bought. had the eight two one and the nine thirty nine, right? And then you got to ride this latest iteration, so you kind of went nice in step. And that's the fun thing when you're sitting there, you know, talking about the bikes and like. I remember a couple of journalists had a question about like the seat and the store, and, and they're like, "Well, Jensen, well, you know, what's the nine three nine have?" And you're like, "Because they all knew I had ridden one yeah. and I had owned one, and so I've probably put about ten thousand miles on the entire Hyper Motard family between the eleven hundred, the eight twenty one, and the nine three nine. So it's like that's a model I really know very well, and truthfully, I think that's why. Ducati had asphalt and rubber come out for that launch because they knew I had the two previous generations. I'm going to be able to speak with a lot of authority on on the changes they've made because I think that you know on one on the one hand I'm a hyper motard believer. Spent my hard earned blogging dollars buying one, right? Buying two, two. <laughs> um, so you know maybe they're thinking that's going to be favorable press, but on the second side, because I'm an owner, I know every weakness of that yes, bike. Yes, you do. And, and that I've bike heard does have them. some weaknesses. Like that that throttle is fucking horrible. Yeah. If you have an 821 or a 939, you know that in town small throttle inputs are a bear. If you're that bike, that bike is like one of the best bikes to own if you can only ride it full throttle. So <laughs> but, which doesn't happen all the time. But that's what that's also like kind of what makes it like the worst bike down because you want to ride it full throttle all the time and right. you're gonna lose your license. 
I, when I worked at the dealership and would sell that bike, you know, if somebody said something about the throttle, and I was I was very honest about the throttle response on those bikes because it was very on off on a on a on a was, bike with so much attitude it was and personality, very lurchy, yeah, super lurchy. So I <laughs> I laugh because I'm remembering telling customers, and I was being deadly serious, like, hey, it's called the hyper motard, not the cuddly calm coddle you dull, motard dull around the right town. this is not the watered down motard this is the hyper motard so it's it this is the bike that ducati still left a little bit of sense of humor in its throttle action and it's going to try and slap you across the face every time you're not paying attention so what happened what's the new one like so the new one's rad the new one's what the 939 should have been because they fix basically all the issues okay. with the bike so so the 821 and the 939 have a magneti morelli throttle system the Hyper Motard has the Hyper Motard 950 has a Continental. Co- uh, Continental, not Mitsubishi, not Mitsubishi. Wow, okay, yeah, it's weird. We had I had like this whole conversation with them about like how they pick, you know, what partner to 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 use for components like that. And Ducati has like this really interesting strategy. And most companies, the bean counters would say, you know, get all your throttle bodies from you know the same company yeah you buy a throttle. company and just spread it across the then, yeah so that way you're like hey we're gonna have a 10 million dollar order with them it's probably probably more than that i'm probably <laughs> screwing up the numbers 11 million whatever it is you know, 100 million dollar order with them <laughs> but you know we're gonna buy over the lifetime of these bikes you know a million units right so hey maybe they'll knock 20 percent off the price because we're buying a million of them whereas if you're only gonna buy like a hundred thousand you're not gonna get a discount at all Ducati, on the other hand, their 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 strategy is buy from multiple uh, vendors, so that way no one vendor has like complete control over your lineup. If interesting, if theory. Bosch goes belly up, they're they're going to be okay because they can get stuff from Continental. If Mitsubishi makes a bad thing, so if they have like a bad batch or a bad year or go out of business or or try to fuck them around and be like, hey, we supply hundred percent of your lineup. Guess whose prices just went up? Right. Buddy. Yeah, they're taking the control out of there. So hands. they do like to have like a little competitive bid. So I can kind of see it both ways. Don't know if I would choose the Ducati way at the end of the day, but there's definitely value to that. I won't discredit it. And if it's working for them, then then hey, I'm on the pragmatist. So yeah, they they've gone to a continental system. I don't think there's any other bikes in the lineup that use it, but it works really well. Um, unlike the 939, it doesn't have any wobbles. That was the thing with like the 821 and the 939. You couldn't fix it. It was a closed loop system below 5,000 RPM. So you couldn't fix it. You couldn't reflash it. You couldn't put a power commander on it. You couldn't get like a chip or an exhaust. Like you're just, you're just hosed basically. <laughs> so it's good to see that that's been fixed. Um, they brought in a bunch of features. It's got a TFT dash that's basically straight off the monster. Um, it's a five inch TFT dash. It's got the same look as what's on the Multistrada and the Panigale V4, same layout. Um, yeah, it looks pretty easy to use. I kind of sat and played with one at the, at the, you know, Northwest release that they yeah. did here. It's lighter. It makes more power. It's got more torque. You had the, did you get to ride the one with a full Termi exhaust on it? They, so this is what I didn't like about the launch where we, we did it, we split it up into half day sessions. So we started out first on the 950 SP. Okay. On this little track. I don't even know what, I don't even like remember the name of it. go-kart track? Or? No, it was a little bit bigger than a go-kart track. It had this weird kind of like back and forth layout. Good looking photos. Um, yeah, great photos. So that bike had a full Termi exhaust on it, which I wasn't too happy about because that's, that's not what's going to arrive at the dealership. You know, you're, you're giving us, me a bike to review. That isn't what a customer is going to get their hands that's on. That's what a dealership does to kind of show you what's the best and try and sell you on that. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm not going to like get too upset about it because we did get time on a stock bike and I think it's more important to ride on the street with a stock bike than to ride on the track with a stock bike. Correct. Just because the the gremlins are more likely to show up on street riding than they are track riding. But there is a little bit of like, you know, when you're on the track, if you're looking for more power, you're looking for more torque, well, that's what a full exhaust is going to get you. So you're kind of cheating on the performance side of it. Right. I don't know. I'm not super happy with it. Uh, I flagged it in my reviews so my readers knew that's what was going on and they can make well, up their own decisions. What were you not happy about the fact that they, they had you ride the full exhaust? Yeah, you're riding a, you're riding a bike that, you know, so you're going to spend, um, I think it's almost $17,000 $17, on an SP. It's on like sixteen five, sixteen eight. I'm impressed that it only went up a couple hundred bucks because the original, well, not original, but the 939 SP was like sixteen three or something like that. Yeah. So for that much extra technology, including the TFT screen, because they used to have the segmented LCD bullshit old school screen on it. Sixteen seven for the nine fifty SP. Okay. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get a little upset because that's just not what you're buying. But you know, you let your readers figure it out. Um, and it's good. It's good on the track. It's it's a. It, you definitely. I went into the first few turns. And I was like, this is a completely different bike. Really, it handles differently. The front end feels different. It's you feel like they changed the the rake on it and the I think oh, I mean it's been so long since I've been on the bike. This is the tragedy of us waiting for too long. I want to say the front end um has stayed the same. The biggest change has been suspension, okay. but the bigger change has been the seating position for the rider. So they've changed the seat pretty dramatically and the bars are a little bit more uh flared forward okay. by seven degrees, I believe. And so that changes how like your weight is on the bike. Yeah, you're a little more on top of the front yeah. tire. And you're able to get your weight more forward because you can sit close more forward on the on the seat. It's more of a supermoto seat than than how it was before. It's more flat. So that, that makes a big difference. And then um so things like a quick shifter, a standard mm-hmm. up down quick shifter. On the SP. On the SP. It's an option on the base model. I think okay. it's like three hundred dollar option. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Uh it's got corner ABS. So this is the thing. This is the, like the one thing I really think is a fuck up, or I don't think they had much of a choice on it. But it's it's a it might be a deal breaker for some riders. You cannot turn the ABS off. And that's what? a European law thing. And so I'm like, well, so what are you going to do about the American market? And they're like, oh, we're going to leave it. So it's going to come Whoa. to the U.S. and you're not going to be able to lock up the rear wheel as you should be able to do on a good supermoto. And their solution to that is they're using the same rear wheel. ABS slide feature that was on the Panigale V4. We were wondering about this before you went and wrote it, yeah. if they're going to use that. And so like, I think actually like having that feature on the Hyper makes a ton of sense, but I kind of wanted to see it how it was on the Panigale V4 where you have, you know, race, you know, ABS mode one lets you lock up the rear. Right. ABS mode two lets you do the rear wheel slide. And then ABS three is like standard, you know, ABS. That's not how it works on the Hyper. I'm shocked. And I just feel like that's such a miss. Because especially like if you're a hooligan kind of guy, like you want to lock up the rear, you want to do these things. Yeah, the whole reason you buy a fucking hyper motard. You can't turn off the ABS, so that means you can't do an endo on the front wheel. So there's like kind of like these hooligan things that you can't do on the hooligan bike. I'm shocked because I've always sort of given Ducati props for allowing you to go in there and fine tune things like how much ABS, how much, you know, how much traction you get with the motorcycle. So for them to have taken that away from the hyper I wonder if that's going to be the standard on all the bikes because the Hyper is sort of the most, you know, crazy motorcycle on the on the on the roster. Yeah, I mean, if the Hyper's got it right, like the other bikes should too. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I don't like this. I, I don't like where this is headed. I'll tell you mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe the aftermarket can come up with some solutions for us. This is the thing I worry about as a motorcyclist. Like, I see the car side of things where they're making a lot of things mandatory, right? ABS is mandatory. Traction is mandatory. Airbags are mandatory. And I'm all about safety. And it's okay. But I like the idea that you can turn things on and off. When you're paying premium money for something, I feel like, in my little head, you should be allowed the luxury of turning things on and off or fine-tuning it based on your needs. And whether you think you're a good rider or not, that shouldn't necessarily be the thing. I think it's... Uh, an option that used to be offered to you. And so let's see, let's see if this is something they're going to continue on or not. If this is going to be a Euro thing all across the board. And does that mean all Euro bikes? Cause it would be cheaper for them just to send the same bike they have over there here, as opposed to making a whole different program for the American market. But um, yeah, I had a good time on the hyper like that bike a lot. I like the way it looks. Did you get to ride the, the non S the non SP oh, yeah. model? Yeah. So well, yeah, we totally lost track of it. So after we did the track day, we had lunch then we hop on the base model and go ride it up this mountain and back down. It's like 80 miles of crazy roads. How was the base model compared to the SP? Great. Would you, do you think it's worth the extra, I don't know, three grand? Seriously, I came back and told him, like, you're going to have a hard time selling SPs. Because now you can get quick shift on there, and I believe the suspension is adjustable now. The suspension is fully adjustable. Um, you can. It's got the TFT dash. It makes the same. Motor stuff's the same. has the same corner ABS. So your big difference is going to be the wheels. Yep. The suspension obviously is a little. Olin's versus. You do have. Uh, is it Marzocchi a, now a on taller, the? Yeah, yeah. You do have a taller ride height with with the Olin's for the SP, so, and that's going to provide more lean angle because your biggest clearance issue when you're leaned over is the foot pegs, which is weird on the Hyper. It's got a pretty not a very high lean angle. Yeah, I would love to see them like. I would love to see the SP have a higher rear set, a higher foot peg height. Like an adjustable maybe even. Yeah, or something. Because it's sort of cast, I think, on the frame there. Yeah, it's weird. Um, so, yeah, like you're going to pay a little extra for wheels, which makes sense. Um, well, I mean, just the wheels alone are worth, like, worth more than uh, what you're paying for the difference between the but it's two. It's like a $3,400 price difference between the two. I think the suspension, the Marzocchi setup, or the base setup is... More than fine for the street, especially yeah. since it's fully adjustable, but I didn't have any issues. I did have the Olin set up for the track after my first session. Um just well, they adjusted it for you? Yeah, because I was just it was just a little too soft for me, for my taste. Uh and felt immediately better. Huh. Um really night and day de- difference. Uh I probably I probably dropped a couple seconds of my lap time. <laughs> But yeah, I think they're gonna have a hard time selling those ba- those SP models. Other than like people always want like the fancier one. I, I will tell you this: having worked in the dealership, we sold like SP to non SP was three to one all yeah. day long. Yeah, if you're buying from Jensen's book of frugality, base model for sure, <laughs> base model for sure, and then just buy the quick shifter. Um, Here's how we sold it: you were paying three or three grand, a little over three grand extra between the standard and the SP, but you were getting Olin's full adjustable Olin suspension and Marchesini forged yeah. aluminum wheels, which if you really were going to just go buy those parts over the counter, you're going to pay seven, eight grand out of pocket for all that. Let me put this. See, I think, I think the days of like Olin suspension being really worth the money oh, yeah. over like the stockiness are really gone. Yeah. Um, At this point, it's just a piece of blink. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really good B2B branding is what it is. Um, but like especially a bike with like the hyper motard, you're not going to do anything with that bike where the Olin suspension is going to give you something more than what the Marzocchi socks setup is going to yeah. give you. 
Um, it's just like, it's not like a track bike. Like you can go on the track with it. You can go like, it's, it's fun on like a go-kart style track, a smaller, tighter track, a more technical track. Like ORP is the one that comes to my mind. If I was going to go ride in Oregon or if I was in California, the West track at Thunder Hill, that's a hyper motard track all day long. Yep. Streets of Willow down South. Those are tracks where it's fun to take a hyper, but I don't think you're going to go really any quicker on the SP than you are the base model because of suspension. So I throw that out the window. I look at the wheels and you're like, okay, yeah, wheels, wheels are, wheels make a pretty good difference. Maybe there's some value there, but again, like I'm not riding it so hard that I'm really sitting there going like, well, man, the base model transitions side to side. You really feel that (laughs) extra cast wheel that you really are going to want to get the forged wheel. Like it's going to change your mind. Like, no, the quick shifter. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I but had some co- issues. A couple hundred bucks. It's a couple hundred bucks. It's 300 bucks, I believe. Um, check your free Ducati dealer. But um, Plus installation, I am sure. Installation is going to be a thing. I think it's just plug and play. I really don't think it's that hard. I, I bet it's like an hour, hour and a half installation time. I, I bet even, it's not more than I that. I bet it's not even that. I bet it's like 15 minutes and they charge so you the for the thing that we half. used to say about Olin's was this, though. And maybe it's changed since, and you can correct me on it. But it used to be if you bought a bike that was equipped with Olin suspension, the Olin suspension people would send somebody there to train your master tech on how to rebuild that full suspension. And that was sort of a big deal to some people to say, hey, I have the suspension on the bike that can always be rebuilt and rebuilt well. But I don't know. Yeah, I see you shrugging over there. So I don't know if that's still a selling point or not. How many, how many, how many times have you had your suspension on your bikes rebuilt? Let's see. I've been riding for 24 years now. None. My track bike, my R1 track bike is from 2004. Yeah. And it just occurred to me the other day, I've never changed the uh, the oil out of those fork tubes. People can't see the sheepish smile on my face because I'm the same shoes as you I with my 2003 track bike. It's yeah. got the same. And you can see like I've got the zip tie around the front fork to see how far I'm diving on a, on a you know, front straight slowdown. Yeah. Dude, I am touching. <laughs> so I probably should <laughs> rebuild that, that, that suspension, but... I, I, I have no, yeah, I have no doubts if I change the the oil out for something fresh that I'm going to feel a, an improvement that I didn't realize I was <laughs> I was losing. But it's one of those things where just like I, I think 99 percent of the customers like there is zero value added in the fact that there's a master tech who's trained in that because it's just never going to happen. Especially when you look at like ownership is 18 months. Yeah, no one gives a fuck. Right. So like I. I I, I, I got to commend Olin's because they've done a really good job with their B2B branding. To, to get that on bikes. And I think, you know, they dominate the racing paddocks for a reason. They have a wealth of knowledge. They have a wealth of support. They work really hard with OEMs to tailor the suspension to, uh, to the bike. And that was one of the things that, you know, talking to the hyper motard team, they're like, Hey, we, we worked really a lot with Olin's to, to improve the way the suspension handles on the bike. And the part of the, he was saying like part of what you're feeling in the side to side turning and the, and the feedback and the turning are the suspension changes that we did with Olin. Mm-hmm. So there's value there in that. I just don't think it's worth $3,400. Not for the street. Because because what Marzocchi did was pretty damn good too. Yeah. You know? I always wonder when companies do this, right? When they have this like slight difference between the two and there's a massive price difference, is the average rider going to see it? But at the same time, you know, you've, you've got the difference between say like a Citizen watch versus a Rolex watch. To be, to be fair, like, I remember on the MV Augusta Brutale 800, and they were putting socks um, suspension on that. 
And I was like, man, this this suspension sucks. Yeah. Especially you get it on yeah, the track. did there. You know, <laughs> the suspension get, sucks. Yeah. And you get it on the track and you're like, this is really bad. I need, I need this and I need that. Like this Marzoki socks setup is not good. And like, like it's just off. And like, I don't know if it's if it's the budget pieces, like if like the shim stack is different or if it's the setup or what or what happened there. But you sit there and you're just like, Yeah. I'm I'm wanting. And there's a certain level, of like you go to the RR bike. Hey, if I'm gonna pay a premium on the bike, I want to make sure the right brands are on it. Uh-huh. That's some of the things that like like you, you want to see Brembo, you, you want, want to, to see talk Olin's. To, you want me to talk a little smack on Kramer. Here's a bike that I, you know, we talk a lot about the show with glowing praise. I think they made a huge mistake in terms of especially their suspension choice. Not that WP suspension is bad. Um, wow, there's there's definitely some racers that are roaring about <laughs> about their WP suspension and, and have switched, but. It's just like, you know, hey, if I want it, if I'm going to buy a, a race bike, I shouldn't have to like a, ter- a purpose built race bike. I shouldn't be making the choice like I'm going to buy different wheels. I'm going to change out the suspension. I'm going to make, you know, I need a different ECU. I need to add on a power commander. And that's, I think, one of the things that they kind of miss where it's like, oh, we're going to work with this brand for this. Like, so like they're working with WP for suspension. Well, you know, a lot of racers want to use Olin's. Right. Or they want to use K-Tech. Right. Or they want to use Penske or they want to use some brands and like. In the U.S., no one uses WP, and and all the work that they've done in Moto Three, because like that is like basically the brand to have in Moto Three right now, is irrelevant because no one in, in the United States watches Moto Three, and they're not really in Moto GP. Everyone's using Olin's in Moto GP. What does WP stand for? White power. I knew it. Yeah. And then they realized like, hey, that means something in other markets. Ooh, we should, we should be careful probably about change that. that a lot. Yeah. We'll call it WP. We produce great suspension i don't know yeah that if you could make an argument for changing a name of a company i think that would be it um and it's the same thing we're like hey like our oem fitments dimag wheels right well dimag's got a bit of a stigma for for things that happened in the 90s <laughs> and it's a british brand and it doesn't have the same it doesn't have the same cachet as a marchesini or as an oc oz racing or as a bst and you know even like rotobox which is a new company coming out you know they've i would say like their brand is stronger than dimag just because it doesn't have a negative history. That's not to say that the WP suspension is bad. That's not to say that Dimag wheels are bad. It's just the wrong brand. And I think a lot of track day enthusiasts, racing enthusiasts do kind of succumb to that B2B branding thing that like Olin's has done such a good job of and Marchesini's done such a good job of and Brembo has done just such a good job of. That's the other thing I forgot. It's not a Brembo master cylinder. What is it? It's um, a company. Like starts Nissan a, or something? Or? I always get this wrong because it's a weird... And that's one of those things where, like, well, you know, Brembo's kind of got that space kind of cornered down. Like, if I'm having trouble with my brakes, probably the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, switch it over to a Brembo system. And I shouldn't have to do that, or I shouldn't have to at least have that perception of it. That might—that's my critique. I wonder. I wonder from my perspective. I'm I'm trying to be the frugal Jensen Beeler here. Do you think they're doing those things to make the bikes more approachable and more quote unquote affordable? I mean, they're not cheap, but you know, we're talking about where else are you going to find a full on track ready race bike for the price that you paid for it? I think it comes down to, I think it comes down to a couple of things. Like I think if you're sourcing KTM engines for your company, you're probably going to get a deal on the KTM owned suspension, which is WP. Right. Uh, maybe. And some of that could be, you know, Kramer's a German company. So there's like a, a German Austrian connection there. And, national shit like that happens or it's just like those are the people you know because they're the same guys in the same time zone across the street you, know, you can call them on your cell phone whereas you know if we're going to call the italian company 
it's a little bit more difficult because they may not speak English very well and you don't speak English very well, or whatever it is. Like there's, there's, there's a locality equation to that. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, some of it could be cost or some of it could just be like, Hey, we spec'd out, you know, brand a brand B and brand C. And we found that there was no difference between the three of them. So we went with the cheapest one or we found that, you know, B and C we couldn't differentiate with and brand a was definitely way worse or maybe brand a was way better. And that's the one we picked or that's the one we excluded. And then we went with other factors. Um, maybe it's availability. Sometimes politics gets into it. Um, maybe sure. a rival company buys a lot from brand B and they say, Hey, you can't sell to them as well and sell to us. So, you know, pick which one and we're 10 times larger. <laughs> so there's a lot, there's a lot of factors that go in there and I'm not privy to that, but, um, I, th- I think if I had a complaint about Kramer, it's that they've made some interesting component choices that I think, um, some of their customers are probably replacing. And I don't think you should have to do that when you're buying a race, a built to race bike. Uh, Akasato. That's what the name of the brand is. Uh. A-C-C-O-S-S-A-T-O. Popular brand, I imagine. I've seen it around. You know, I've seen it on things, but it's like, you know, Brembo's, Brembo's the jam, right? I don't, and I can't tell you if this master cylinder is any better or any worse. I don't, you know, but there's a perception issue. Yeah, there's of a course. value issue there. So that's, that's, that's my, that's my gripe. Um, and racers love feeling comfortable with whatever it is they have well, underneath them, right? That's the thing, right? That that's there's like a conservative nature to that. There's some of it's like I've used company X before. I my same same with I do with with Pirelli tires. I've used Pirelli tires before. I know this tire. It's a known quantity to yeah, me. You have a comfort zone there. You know this is this is something. It's the devil I know. Whereas like I'm gonna go take a chance on this brand I don't know. I might have issues. Maybe other people don't use it. So if I come into an issue, I don't have a wealth of knowledge to go explore. Maybe you don't have trackside support. Maybe there's you know poor distribution or you know. Um, like have you talked to them about this and and kind of dug into why they've gone that route as opposed to full on Brembo Kramer specifically? No. Yeah, it just um, seems weird because they've already you know chosen the Brembo caliper and the Brembo. Is it the master cylinder too, or no? No, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the Akasato master cylinder. I'm, I'm, I, I have to imagine that it's a cost issue. If they're trying to keep the the S bike at 17 grand, could be. Once they start adding all this other, you know, minutia of stuff, it adds up. It adds up quickly. You're gonna end up being at a twenty thousand dollar motorcycle suddenly. Could be, but like, what costs me more buying the bike that is gonna be like a hundred dollars cheaper because they've got the more value master cylinder on it, or me buying the bike and then having to change it? That's what I'm saying. Like, so maybe I spend a hundred bucks more, but right. I'm not gonna have to swap it out. Whereas if I buy it and swap it out, like I'm not gonna get any money on eBay. I, I wonder for that if their cylinder. theory was you're just gonna buy this thing, take it out of the box, put fuel in it, and put your favorite stickers on there and just go ride. I, I, I think that's exactly what it is. And that's why I'm saying it should have the components on it that I want. I shouldn't have to have that turnkey track bike, that turnkey race bike, and then have to go and be like, oh, I need to get this, this, and this before it's really the bike that I wanted. Right. That's all I'm saying. If it was me, if it was my company, I would make it all a cart. I mean, you're already buying things in like tens of units batches, so you're not getting discounts on anything. And just yeah. say like, hey, like I've seen a couple brands do this, but like, hey, what what brake patch? We got a we got an A spec, a B spec, and a C spec, and here's the pricing for it. And this is, you know, for the brakes, and the suspension, and the wheels, and make it a la carte, and then we make it to your order. This is a conversation we had previously, though, about about the motorcycle industry as a whole. And the manufacturer is not necessarily doing the a la carte thing. They just kind of give you a quote unquote blank slate and say, all right, this is where you get to go to the parts and accessories department and, you know, paint this thing up the way it's supposed to be. 
it, it drives me crazy. I, before I started asphalt and rubber, we, I was in business school, and we had to do this. Um, I forget what class it was, but we had to do some sort of like like business presentation, mm-hmm. um, like to like start a business, like what business you start. I think it was an entrepreneurship class, and I did it based on a motorcycle company whose whole business model was that it was a modular business or a modular design for their motorcycle. So you literally you like picked like you know your your basic motor. Then you kind of like had a chassis that was, or a frame that was built to that. But then you could pick like what kind of front end you wanted and what brakes and what wheels you wanted and what, you know, suspension and how the seat looked. And like you had a couple of different bodywork choices. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing was like they were going to build it in the dealership for you. It was, it was like a very maybe pie in the sky idea looking back on it. Like I don't know how that would work. You know, you're going to have a dealer basically acting as a manufacturer and that takes a lot of skill and there's some liability things and blah, 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 blah. But it got me thinking about like a lot of like this idea of, you know, modular vehicle design, platform design, and the ability to be like, hey, you want this bike, like motorcycles are personal expression. You want this bike built, you know, to your spec from the factory. And it's funny to see like MV Augusta has a program like this Mm -hmm. now. Uh, Aprilia kind of has a program like this if you buy a track only RSV4. I feel like Virus was one of the first custom coach well, builders that kind of did that then you have brands that are like virus right. or like confederate comes to mind or um, well, i mean at that point you're you know, paying the, so the much money they flew you in and measured you essentially. right so at that point like you're just getting like their whole jam is bespoke machines <laughs> um but i was thinking at a more of like a mass level uh where it wasn't so much like hey we're making it bespoke to you it's just we have three or four options for very you know from various parts of the motorcycle right and that's just kind of like factored into price and we kind of see it like like Ducati Scrambler kind of did this a little bit because they had a lot of performance parts and a lot of apparel. And you see that with the varying degrees with different bikes and different brands where they'll, you know, BMW has is notorious for like, here's our base model. That's the price we advertise. But, you know, you have to put <laughs> yeah. the the performance package on it and then the headlight package on it. And then you have to have like the sweet German package on it. And then it's like the nuclear winter package. And by the time you walk out the door, you just put $24,000 on the MSRP of the bike and you're totally screwed. But, you know, they they do a really good job of doing little packages that you kind of a la carte along the way. you want that to be fully German, you have to pay the price. You have to pay the price. I don't know. It, 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 it's interesting. And I think you have more leeway to do that when you're a smaller brand than when you're a big brand. I, I hope to see that in the future of motorcycling because, you know, we've talked about it. There's a chassis and you get to buy it. And then hopefully you have a parts person who's smart enough or, or interested enough to help you measure yourself up properly to get the right handlebars right seat right pegs you know to make it fit properly but that's the same thing though like so i I like where you're going with it because if if a smart dealership should have like a a performance person and an apparel person there truthfully for every bike sale it's called the chrome consultant yeah you're chrome consultant (laughs) yeah brother come here i do have a kind of like a visceral problem of so i'm gonna go spend how much money on this bike and then i have to spend how much more money to fix all the things on it that i don't want i've heard this so many times from buyers and just like that feels like a wasted experience to me. And when we have this issue of motorcycles have gotten a little too expensive. I think I think that's a fair case, especially if you're going to look at new sales versus like total motorcycle ownership. If total motorcycle ownership really is going up and motorcycle new bike sales are going down. Yep. What does that tell us? Shit's gotten expensive. Shit's getting expensive. So we're going to the used market. Yeah. And the used market is doing great. I mean, we, we just watched the whole movie about this well i want to get to that in a second but i want to kind of wrap this idea up because i i don't know i think something has to give there somewhere because like i'm seeing it like the camera like now i didn't have to really change anything that i didn't really want to change like 
truthfully, the only thing I'm really having an issue with is the brakes. And that's because I made a conscious choice to go with the S model instead of the R model because I want to stay with a single right. light. I didn't make a conscious choice. I got a scream and deal on the demo bike. But I mean, that's still a choice you made. Yeah. I mean, versus money, spending but... consistently more money on, you know, the the bike that would have come from the factory just for me. Right. But, you know, like my only real gripe is is the S bike's brake setup. Now I needed a, I had to buy a second second set of wheels. I was going to need a second set of wheels anyways. Yep. Because and it rains in Portland and I need two sets of wheels. So I need to get wheels. I can I can use this one set for rains and I can use one set for dry, but I can't use one for both. Um. But you know you have seen other bikes where you're just like, why am I having to change? That? It's, it's like the same thing with like like the older hypers. You see like people like put pipes and do different things like, oh, I got to fix this throttle thing. And here's my <laughs> attempt to fix it. And you're like, no, that should just come from the factory working. Like I shouldn't have to buy something in the aftermarket to fix that because the OEM should be doing a better job. Um, you know, that being said, like, you know, just to wrap up my thoughts on the hyper, I think it's a great bike. I think, you know, I would, I would want higher rear sets on the SP. That would be the only thing I, like the factory. I'd be like, hey, guys, you need to change this. Just to like, if that's the race bike, if that's the racier version, make right. it a little racier. Right. I have the same thing with the uh, Multistrada Pikes Peak version. Uh, hey, that's the bike that you guys are racing at Pikes Peak. Make the clip on a little bit higher. Give me some give me some more clearance. Make that a bike that I can actually go out to the track and drag knee, not drag pet. Right. Don't make it a mockery of it and just put a paint job on there and yeah. instead of lighter wheels, go like, here it yeah. is. It's the race one. It wouldn't take that much. No. It wouldn't be that hard. You could do it. So um, the, the question that everyone's going to ask, and I've seen them ask you already, is, would you spend your hard-earned blogging money to buy another Hyper SP? If I want another bike like the Hyper in my garage, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The thing that's really interesting to me is like what bikes people were comparing that to. Like for my own purposes, I look at like the Doors of Duro 900. I look at the Husky 701 Supermoto, and I think wow, the Hyper. Really? Well, I mean, those are all, those are the the three like full size maxi. We call them maxi Supermotos. Yeah. They're so they're such different animals. All three of those. All three of them are super different bikes. Um, and I think the Hyper. I think you get a, what you pay for. I think you get. I think for dollars for features, you get a lot more than what the other brands are offering. Um, yeah, I agree. And and it's a bike that like you don't want to ride a Husky Seven Hundred One on the freeway very for very long. You're not going to ride long distance with it. It feels like a dirt bike. It is a dirt it bike is with a dirt bike. It's on a it. giant piston just going crazy in between your legs. Yeah, right the doors of Duro is definitely better in the nine hundred cc form than it was in its uh, seven fifty form. It's got it's really cheap. Price wise, and so there's a lot of value there. Um, but I think for the paying for a little bit more for the hyper, you get a lot more in feature and 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 fit. What's and price finish. difference in Doors of Duro Aprilia on this thing? Um, is there like a four or five thousand dollar price difference? I just so that's, that. that's pretty mighty if it is that much. I just had that up on my screen and then I closed it. So nice of you to do that to me. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, why did I close that window? That was that was. My name is Shane Alvandi, and I asked the difficult questions. Yeah, so um, base model Hyper, thirteen three. Yep. Dozo Duro is eleven thousand. Oh, and a okay. Husky is going to be eleven eight. Really? So the Dozo Duro is the cheapest one in the group. Wow, and that's I. I mean, if I was riding on the streets only, I would go over the Dozo over the Husky. Right. So that's the thing. The more interesting thing for me is the Husky versus the Ducati. Like you're really only talking about thirteen hundred dollars there. What a, Did I just do the math right? No, $1,500 there. Whatever. It's under $2,000, and they couldn't be two more different animals. You couldn't get, like, you You don't get nearly as, the, you don't, the traction control on the 701 is super rudimentary. Yeah. 
No corner in ABS. It's a dirt bike, man. It's a dirt bike with 17-inch wheels on it. If we're looking at the... the it's got... I don't know if they still have it on the 2019 model, but used, when it first came out, it had like a vinyl on the wheel that would just come <laughs> off after like 200 miles. And you're like, that's super fucking cheap. Um, if It's a dirt bike with 17s. Yeah. Whereas the, the Ducati is way more, way more polished. It's a lot of fun. If I... I think I've done the hyper motard and I think I've gotten the t-shirt and I'm and I'm ready to move on to other things. You're gonna grow up to a Goldwing? Well, I just put a, I did just put a Goldwing in the garage. I think if I'm looking at the time machine, I think we're gonna talk about that next episode. Yes. I wanna talk about that so, that roadster in your in your garage. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna talk some Honda stuff next show. I kinda wanna get to the one show. I wanna wrap up this thought and then get to the one show in the All movie. right, let's go. Um but just final thoughts on the hybrid. I think I think I don't think there's an excuse not to buy one. I have some issues with the rear brake. They're not it's not a deal breaker for me. Okay. I wish Ducati would listen and fix it. I don't think they will just cuz I think they're they're in a rock and a hard place on that one. But um if you haven't ridden a Hypermotard or or Maxi Supermoto, do it. They, they're a lot of oh, fun. Do it. Um the, the one thing I should mention about the Hyper that I didn't say before is they've really focused this bike to be a sport bike. So they got rid of the Hyperstrata, which had bags and a yeah. larger screen and was a little which bit lower. It was a silly bike. Even when it was there, it was a silly bike. It's a tough sell, but it definitely had its following. I think with the rear brake, you've basically taken off any hopes of having some sort of off-road adventure bike component right. to the Hyper sales. And so now it really, truly is, there's no touring, there's no off-road, there's no enduro. So you can't even buy a kit that gives you some kind of a top case or something like that? No, they've made, they That'll have be a little no bit of a bummer for, for some people. I think soft bag sales are going to go off the roof for that bike. Yeah, they've got a soft bag kind of option, but it's, yeah, they're, they're really like, this is a bike for urban riding. This is a bike for sport riding. This is a bike for popping wheelies, jumping curbs. And being a menace on two wheels. And that Amen to that. And if that sounds good to you, you should definitely buy one. I am if, I'm I suck at wheelies and I wheelie the shit out of those things. Yeah. If you have aspirations to do elsewhere, then I mean that's that's the thing. Like I can I can think of a couple owners of hyperstratas and people with you know, that want something smaller than a multi twelve hundred that are like, oh, I guess I don't have a bike. And that, that's the thing. Like, you know, Ducati's like, well, you know, if you want a smaller multi, if you want a 1260, you, you can get the 950. But it's like, well, the 950 weighs like five pounds less. more, yeah. Five pounds less than the big multi. So it's like, I'm not I'm not getting a lighter bike. I'm not getting a smaller bike. It's getting less power. You're just getting less power. And maybe I don't like the way the multi looks. Maybe I don't want that big of a bike because there's, there's literally like a 60 pound spread between the hyper and the multi. Yeah, and unfortunately, when you want to go from kind of an urban badass like the Hyper to something that tours better, you need something that's got more protection on there. And unfortunately, wind protection is not necessarily always sexy. And that's where the multi comes in, right? I think it's a good-looking bike. For for its segment, it's a good-looking bike. But you park it next to a Hyper, and you're like, look at that turd. And I like the way the Hyper looks. I do, too. Um, the, the new one. I, I like the the way they did the facelift. I like the way the seat looks. It looked like a, looked like a little throwback to the 1100. It does. It's got the the tail end of it. It's really a throwback to the 1100. The Especially way the, with the full exhaust. The way the... the Not with the full exhaust. Well, well, I well like, with the high mount? Yeah, the yeah, high I mount. Guess so. I it guess so. think of the 1100. I mean, I, the regular twin exhaust that's on there is definitely 1100 looking, but when I saw you put up the picture of the, the high mount full termy exhaust, I'm like, oh man, what is that I'm looking at? Yeah. Does it have a dry clutch? <laughs> yeah, and and they do like the way the tail section kind of ends is like literally straight off the 1100. It's got that same look. So there's definitely some homage there, that they're doing there. Um, 
and it, it's it's good like i don't i don't have a lot of faults with it. it it's expensive i don't like the rear wheels that that's it or i don't like the rear brakes that's about it and it and it's fun to ride that's pretty good it rails it's a lot of fun everyone on our trip on our on our press launch had uh nothing but good things to say so i don't think i've ever encountered someone that test rode a hyper that didn't love it even the old ones with their glitchy weird ass yeah, unless they got stuck in traffic yeah <laughs> you just run the red light fuck that red light yeah this is a basically hyper. basically right get on the curb you're on the sidewalk now there is no red lights on sidewalks go 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 yeah yeah i, I at least go down and test ride one like even if you don't have any aspirations of buying one sales guys like it when you just show up and test ride bike just go and do it tell them shaheen send you <laughs> <laughs> the shah of brap sends send me your brap way. said i should ride this thing uh i have zero intentions on buying but can i just ride it because yeah, at least i mean truthfully i think you run the risk of ending up buying one because they're a lot of fun but like it's one of those things, like you should at least experience because i like having that long travel suspension yep. i like the upright sitting position it's very commanding you're feeling very controlled it's very comfortable they did a good job of tapering the uh, fairings less because it used to be like your legs were kind of in the wind. You were kind yeah. of splayed out yeah. and the wind would catch your knees and you ended up actually having to squeeze your legs back to the tank, which would fatigue you on long rides. And that, they fixed that. There's a lot of things like this bike, like I keep saying it over and over, and this is what the 939 should have been because it fixed all the issues that were present in the 821 and then carried over to the 939. So... I'm glad to see it. As a, as a former Hyper Motard owner, I am glad to see it. So a uh, Jensen Beeler Asphalt and Rubber slash Brap Talk uh, score of 1 to 100? So that's the thing. I want to start doing like... I know you do. That's, why I'm, that's why I'm pushing this. Well, that's the thing. There's no 1 to 100. It's like... it's like right, in theory, a score. In theory, 10 years from now, we could have like a 200. That's fine. Um, we got to start somewhere. I don't know. I don't know how to score it out of 100 because um, that's a stupid way of scoring things personally. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I want to do like an absolute score. Um, if the hyper motard, this is how I was doing it. If the hyper motard A21 was a hundred, okay, then the 939 was a mm, 103, just because it had like more mid range. And I mean, truthfully, there wasn't a big difference. That was really the only one that slightly more mid range, like, like a slightly better dash. And the way they did the gearing in the Euro 4, like power really didn't change that much. Um, well, at least what you felt at the tarmac, right. The 950, I would give a 108. I think it's five points higher than 939. Okay. Maybe I might, I might bump that to 110. I'd have to think on it. So because, 100. Because there's a lot more feature there. So you gave a 100 to the, uh, to the A21. Yeah. Not 103 to 939. 103. Okay. So we're jumping up to potentially a 110. Yeah. Maybe 109. I might split the difference on that. Okay. Yeah. What did the 1100 get then? I mean that's true. like truth truth be told like the the eleven hundred would be like a like a ninety five really think about it though huh. there's no there's no track control there's no ABS yeah it's funny because a lot of old time Ducati lovers are like eleven hundred or death <laughs> there's a lot there's I mean I think I think there's tons of like old air cooled guys that that love those bikes and I can see why like it's a great bike I rode a a buddy of ours he's got a pretty cool built out 1100 and um you know i was like man this bike is rad this bike is fun maybe i give it more than 95 but i'm not gonna give it much more no 97 <laughs> all right well at least it's good news ducati you've been slowly going up in the scoring yeah i don't know i'd have to think about it, it that's the thing like that that scoring method is a really interesting one like you really gotta wrap your head around it like where you start and where, where your reference is and i think what we need to do is create a scoring based on 
other scores. So you're going to have to score like braking, suspension, engine power, seating. Well, that's how you get to the score. Right? That's how you get to it. Right. But like, I think at the end of the day, like, like it's more digestible for readers. Like that bike was an asphalt and rubber 104. That bike over there, that was a 107. Which bike's better? The 107. Like, like you know it is. Because if the next one is a 106 instead of a 107, but, they but, done fucked up. But that's where it makes like interesting. Like where I said the 821's a 100 and yep. the 939's a uh, 103. So for three points, are you going to upgrade? Probably not. Mm, no. And that's where I'm like, that, that was the hardest part for me when people talk about like the 939 to upgrade to the 950. I'm like, yeah, you probably want to upgrade. And that's where I kind of have to think of like, well, what, how many points should you delta to, to want to upgrade? And then, you know, how do you compare older bikes? And it, it gets really interesting. It's not a straightforward reviewing. I think we're going to have to sit down and do the math on this one. Like, we're going to talk do about a this over point delta, 10 point delta. But that's the fun thing, like too. Like then, how do you compare like a super or a hyper motard to like a super duke? Because a lot of people are trying to do that, and I was just like, man, those are two completely different bikes. Yeah. Or or I mean, scoring wise, or, they might fall under the same close to the same score. Well, they're but, different segments. I mean, that's just the thing. But I can kind of see why if you're buying a hyper, you might be in the market for a seven ninety or twelve ninety duke because don't they're you both, love when people do that to you as a journalist. Like hooligan bikes. Yeah. Hey, I'm looking to buy a CBR 1000 R or a, oh man, or an Africa Twin. Which one do you think I should buy? <laughs> I've got a buddy who loves to constantly ask me, like, I'm thinking about getting a uh, Monster 1200, a Goldwing, or a Nikon. <laughs> Which one do you think I should get? And I was like, Could you pick three bikes that are more different from each other? Ford Explorer. You don't deserve a motorcycle. Get out of here. Yeah, at that point you're just like, Well, <laughs> did you did you want to go off road with it? Uh, do you, are you going to go do track days? Do you want to like? go across the country with it like which thing are you going to go do because that's the bike you should get don't worry about me <laughs> all right so, so moving on moving on let's get off of it um yeah go ride a hyper motard you won't just you won't just be disappointed we you want to talk one show you want to talk oil in the blood let's talk one show let's go one yeah? show all right one show because that leads into the we're, we're the so pulp fictioning this is not even funny yeah um my name is Butch. Tenth year. Tenth year. We had snow. So this is this is the thing that's really interesting for me. And, and, okay, I'll tease the oil and the blood. There's one segment in the oil and the blood that really kind of cracked me up. And they got tore on film. <laughs> the pricing thing? Yeah. And they're talking about like community <laughs> and how it needs to be like accessible. Like this is how we're gonna get new riders and we're like all family. And they got tore on the screen and he's like, he says something like, I don't know what what would be the point for charging for a motorcycle show. Like, I don't get it. That's a stupid idea. That's a real rough paraphrase, and that's like from four days it ago. Is, so it I is, it is. I thought he said something about the cost of doing the thing. Yeah, right? it costs like, a lot of money. Like, that's the thing. He's like, that's why we have sponsors, so we don't have to charge people at the right. gate. And then, like last year, I think it was the first year they charged money for the show, and Handbuilt had started charging money. Yep. And this year, like they literally like tripled the price. Dude, Saturday was a three segment price. It yeah. was ten dollars for morning, ten dollars for afternoon, thirty dollars for the evening show. Yeah. To be fair, you could come in in the morning for ten dollars and Stick just around. stay. Oh, dude, that's a twelve-hour day for me. I'm just sticking that's around. That's a long day. But Make like, that ten dollars stretch. It was a little bit of laugh, and the crowd like actually chuckled pretty loud over that because it was so like matter of fact the way he said it. And you're just like, dude, you are like straight up. I'm gonna say gouging people, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put an asterisk, and we're gonna come back to that in a second. But so I say this because the crowds. I felt the crowd was a lot smaller this year. It did feel that way. But also, understand you think it was the weather. We had a lot of worry over the weather yeah. on whether it was going to snow because it did snow 
So I went Saturday. Dude, the grocery store sold out of food because Portland right. weather forecast was like, snowpocalypse is coming. Yeah. Fill your cars up with gas and water and food. You're all going to die. Yeah. And then fuck all happened. So I can totally see how that could affect people showing up. Um, I think once, I, I don't think the crowd was bad. I came inside. I was like, because usually it's a madhouse. Yeah. And that's where I'm coming back to my asterisk. And I think that's why I, th- I truthfully was fine when they started charging last year. Because the lines were getting ridiculous to come in. There was like fire marshal issues. It was just, there was just too many damn people that want to come to the motorcycle show, which is great. But the space can only be so big. I don't think there's a bigger space in Portland you're going no, to go to. No, that's pretty, I love this space. This unless, is the third year in this space and yeah. it's really awesome. Unless you're going to like the Moda Center or something. Like you're just not going to find a they bigger area. Money. Yeah. So how do you control the crowd? Well, start start putting a fee at the gate. You're going to yep. start getting rid of the cheapskates. You aren't going to, you know, pay any money. $10. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, I'm not you know, paying there's, $10. There's, there's, there's those people, and that, help, that helps control it. And I think even last year, we still had like lines out the street, down the street. It was crazy busy. So, yeah, they did what you do. Good good market economist does. You raise the price to get that that pivot point Disney on world, the does it charge, every year. supply and demand. <laughs> and so when I got inside, I was like, this crowd's way smaller than normal, but the crowd was also a lot more manageable. I wasn't like rubbing elbows with people the entire time i could actually like walk around and i could actually appreciate the bikes there was there was a lot of people there but it wasn't packed i guess is what i'm trying to say right so i don't know if i'm actually i'm not faulting you know uh, the one show and tour for their decision i think it's truthfully i think it's the right decision but it was kind of funny to see the the statement on the video that was from like two three years ago yeah it was definitely from to what I the reality is ago, now yeah. and you're like ah Buddy, gotcha. Maybe you should edit that part out. Yeah, someone should talk to <laughs> talk to the oil and blood guy and see if we can get that edited out. But we, it, it's it's a real thing in the space. I had seen. one issue with the whole show, uh, just Ooh, one, literally an issue, and it's that they don't do a good job at the front marking what line is what because they have two lines. Yeah, there's a line where you buy a ticket, and there's a line where you've bought the ticket, and they're just checking you in. Regardless, the lines move slowly because there's a person up front doing security duty, or two people if you're if you're lucky. If you stand in the wrong line, which this year was the left line, which means you haven't if if you haven't bought a ticket and you're long in the wrong line, you end up going to all the way to the front. Twenty minutes later, and they're like, "Oh, this is the wrong line. You got to get in the other line to go buy a ticket." And at that point, it's like almost a riot started because people were because pissed. Portland people do not do well with cutting. They, they, <laughs> like like I mean, that, Portland people like lines. They stand in line for brunch every fucking Sunday, but this place almost caused a riot. Um, so that that was really the only problem. I think they should try to. Maybe market better at the end of the line, you know, at the gate. A little crowd control. I mean, it's a volunteer organization. Right. But it is one of the I think you're right. Like 10 years in, that should be something we should have figured out by now. Uh, I will say, my, my only real issue, and this is a real nitpicky one, maybe it's time for the donation box at the front door to go away. Yeah, maybe it is if you're charging money to If you're going to charge 30 bucks Saturday right. night with and on top of the giant Indian sponsorship banner that has like yeah. 20 other brands underneath <laughs> it, like guys like... I'm not going to give you any. This goes back to my my like Patreon yeah, like GoFundMe yeah. thing, where it's like you're asking for a handout. You're literally asking for a donation for your corporate sponsored event, where I still had to pay a cover at the go- at the door. Like how many maybe more avenues of money do you need maybe here? Maybe it's time. For, oh, and by the way, like I'm going to go buy food and stuff. Actually, the food's really really reasonably. Food was priced. really good uh, this year, and it was very yeah. reasonably priced. Just saying, rethink the donation box. I, I would love to find out from Tor what you know. What the cost of that oh, is? It's man. a huge uh, that, piece. That's the thing. I, that I'm sure I the real estate's not understand. cheap. And every year, the real estate in Portland is getting more and more expensive. So that giant pickle factory that they're using. So it's 3,500 square feet. It's hundred or thousand. Oh, you're 
I thought it was 3,500 square feet. No, dude, this house hmm. that you live in is almost 2,000 square feet. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> you know what I'm looking at? I'm, I'm right on the 3,500, but I'm wrong on what I'm applying it to. So they're doing like some sort of like maker's thing there where like they're leasing out spaces. Oh, that, okay. That's what the Pickle Factory is about to become is like this kind of like yeah, I saw this co-op maker place. Like an arts co-op yeah. thing. And they're leasing out spaces 800 square feet to 3,500 square feet. Okay. That's what I'm thinking of. Got yeah, it. that building... Oh shit! And I don't know. So like that one room upstairs, twenty thousand square feet, were, maybe at least. Yeah. That one room upstairs where the, all the choppers were—that's probably the thirty-five hundred square foot room. That's the biggest room there. I, I bet it costs real money. Oh, I God, bet it costs I bet real it money. Does. Like, For it, the three days, I've heard people give give CC and Tor like a lot of hard time about like how they're profiteering off of off of like the hipster motorcycle movement. And my perception is the reality of that is like I think he's doing okay. Yeah. But I don't think there's like a world of opulence going on. I don't think there's like a secret mansion. Yeah, I don't see him driving around in Rolls Royces just yeah. yet. Yeah. So, but for me, I love the fact that we've got a huge, really popular motorcycle show that draws the entire motorcycle industry to Portland. And that is 100% Torrance CC's doing. I love that. And, That's super and cool. I think in a way you could credit him or blame him, depending on what side of the <laughs> equation you're on, for the whole hipster motorcycle movement. You know, I think he was a big part of that. And, you know, we watched in the movie and they kind of credit the one show for that in 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 in, in part. So, um yeah, I think I think that's really that's like the big the big takeaway for me is just like, you know, the show keeps getting bigger, it keeps evolving, it keeps maturing. Um the crowd for for what the gate cost was and for what the the weather was doing, I feel like the show's in a healthy place. The bikes are good. You're seeing some of the top builders. Some beautiful that are, bikes. That are yeah, I met Roland Sands. Yeah. I mean, they're all there. All the names were there. It was it was pretty neat to be able to walk and talk with the dude who just lives down the street who put the thing together in his garage and then be able to chit-chat with Roland Sands and be yeah. like, oh, dude, you're fucking RSD. Okay. Jared Orl's there. Um, Walt Siegel. Um, I'm going to forget about 20 other I got to hang builders. out with my buddy Mark Hawa, who oh, created yeah. the, the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride. Yeah. It's funny when you meet him, that dude's a party animal. Is he? I've never laughed so hard than with this crazy Australian guy that looks like he could be my brother. Is he a distinguished gentleman? He can be uh, one day a year. The other 364, <laughs> he is a fucking rock star. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's cool. I like, I, like the, I like the whole thing. There's, from a bike perspective, there's a lot of cruisers. A lot of cruisers and a lot of flat track bikes. A lot. And then there's like four road racy bikes. And a lineup of bikes with lawnmower engines. I don't know. There was a good. I thought there was a good showing of what I call like new modern builds. Like the Earl bike was there. Mark's Panigale was there. There was a Cake had a couple of bikes there. That was kind of neat. Cake was there, but Cake Cake was there as a vendor. They weren't there as a as a show bike. Yeah. Uh, it was cool to see the Cake bike up close and, and to talk to them a little bit. That's very intriguing to me. For those who don't know, it's um. Actually, the best way to describe it, and this is not the most flattering way to describe it, is like a early zero. Because when zero first started out, they were kind of mixing and matching motorcycle and bicycle, bicycle yeah. components and, right. and, and frames and kind of uses. And that was like a really bad thing at the time. And now it's kind of turned into a thing where it's like there's some segment that's kind of creating itself between the world of motorcycles and bicycles. And Cake is kind of in that spot. And we've seen some other brands in there. Um, there's these pedalless e-bikes, basically, that are kind of coming into that space. 
Harley's coming out with some stuff. We've seen other brands playing around with it. It's it's very intriguing to me. I feel like it's going to be like the gateway drug into the motorcycle I think industry. So too. Cake, Cake is definitely on the upper echelon of pricing, though, because they're... Was it like $50,000? No, they, they, they're between thirteen dollars to $15,000. That's a lot of money. Their, their street legal one is fifteen grand. Now, it's funny. If you look at it, it is essentially the size of a downhill mountain bike. And it weighs about the same. It's, oh, it's a little more. It's like 150-something pounds. But the thing can do 55 miles an hour. So it's not really a bicycle because it does 55. And it's got like a, I think he was saying it's got like a, I want to say three or four hour range on it. So it's pretty respectable. But damn, dude, 15 grand for basically what something that looks like a bicycle with Olin suspension on it. Yeah. That's tough. That's a tough, that's a tough ass. That's a motor. That's a hyper motor. That's a hyper motor. Hell yeah, it is. That's a thousand less than the SP model with the yeah. same fucking suspension. Yeah. So. I mean, that's, but that's, that's one brand. That's one data point. I think you're going to see more competition in that yeah. space. You're going to see people being like, okay, well, how much motor do I really want? How much battery do I really want? What components do I really want to work with? Such and such and such. And we'll see what the pricing comes down to. Um, Favorite bike? Uh, ah, you're going to like, oh, okay. I'm here. Favorite bike was the huge design uh, custom Zero uh, FX Supermoto. That thing was beautiful. Easily my favorite bike. It like, was beautiful. I had a guy message me today, an industry guy, and he goes, do you think anyone at zero stays up at night wondering how many sales they lost? <laughs> knowing that like something like that would just be selling out like like the business. <laughs> and they're like, absolutely, because that's that's always been, well, I wouldn't say that's always been my issue. It's been my issue from the start is these bikes look like sin. Yeah, there's no sex appeal. We talked about this. But they've done a really good job fixing the mechanical side of it. We're like, hey, you're making really proper motorcycles that yeah. are fun to ride if you're blindfolded. Now hire a designer, please. Now hire a designer, please, <laughs> for the love of baby Jesus. So it's cool to see that they linked up with Huge Design, which is a design for San Francisco. parking this thing in the back of the building and hiding it from everyone. Yeah, it looks so good. And so here's the thing. So Huge Design, for those who don't know, kind of got put on the map because they uh, created a kind of a kit for the Honda CBR 1000 uh, R. And it, was, it really transformed, you know, what is, let's say, one of the more lazy super bikes on the market into kind of a hot looking sport bike, street fighter thing. I don't know how to describe it. It's very modern, very, very modern in its design. Right. So it's this, this is the same aesthetic. Like I, I was saying in a story earlier, it's like, you know, it's very modern, it's very visually light, it's very sleek. It's, it's that same kind of treatment. But he did the same thing, or they did the same thing they did with the CBR, they did with the Zero, where it, they're going to make it a bolt up kit. It bolts directly up to that bike. That's so cool. Like, if I'm zero, I'm going to be making sure all my dealers have these kits because I think, like, truthfully, like, I'm, if I had a local dealer down in down here in Portland and I was in the market for a bike, that would I would I would think about that. That that thing looks rad. That thing looks cool. I don't want to be on a zero FX because I want I don't want to have to see that giant rectangular battery pack staring me in the face like my future but that cool like little neo-modern thing that they got going on i'd rock that all day uh, i think i commented our a commenter on our site said something like you know this is what you know the akira bike is actually going to look like in 2020 yes. or 2050 or whatever it is because that's where the aesthetic is actually going to so yeah for me they swung that out of the park what, what was your bike you know, I'm, I'm trying to look up and see if I can figure out who the builder of it was, but I can't believe I'm saying this. One of my favorite bikes that I saw there was what looked like a BMW R1200 GS that was turned into a Dakar race bike. It was very minimalist. It had this beautiful, shiny, uh, aluminum hand-built body on there. Oh, you're thinking of Gregor's bike. Dude, it was Gregor's bike. That thing was so beautiful to me. 
And the um, fact that it was all muddy and dirty made me really happy when I saw it there. Yeah, that's Gregor Halenda, who is a Hasselblad master. He's a very famous uh, motorsports photographer, does a lot of photography, very famous photographer here in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, he's uh, one part of the Velimaki brand. Of course. What else did you know him? I think he did a lot of photos for Revit. But yeah, that bike's cool. That was cool. And he, the bodywork's all metal. Yeah, and it's all metal. He went out and did the thing on it. You know, that, that bike is a runner. He spent a lot of time on that metal work. It's just such a beauty. And it looks like, he, you know, he took it out and just abused it on the dirt later. Love so. that bike. That, I, and it's it's so rare for me to look at a BMW. In fact, we were, I was with my buddy Christian, our buddy Christian, uh, the on Friday over there. And we just both stopped there and looked at it. And both he and I are not huge BMW boxer fans, but we looked at that and was like, all right, that's a good looking bike. I, I, I like it a lot. And the fact that it's a BMW is making me like it even more. Yeah. It makes you, it makes you feel a little dirty, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. A little bit yeah. dirty, but that's the thing. I, think I went home and kissed my bike. It, it's got that, um, it's got that aesthetic, that look that I think Yamaha is doing a good job riffing on with the T7. Yep. Where it's just that, like, yeah, it's just, this is a Dakar. The T7, a Dakar. what is that? I know, right? It'll come out in like four years, probably. Um, gosh, get it to market already. <laughs> but don't worry, KTM's got this. <laughs> KTM, and like five other brands, I've got it. Uh, that's the funny part. But it, it, it's got that visual sveltness that you see, like, of a Dakar bike. It still has got the boxer heads kind of coming out, right. but. You know, you look at that, and you're like, I bet that actually goes and does the business. I bet mm-hmm. that that does the beans. Like you're kind of like, hey BMW, maybe you guys should do something like this. Don't make me, don't give me a GS. Give me like a, I don't know what you want to call it. They they kind of did like a um, bare bones 1200 boxer off road bike. I thought they did it was like the HP two something something. It was oh. it was a really it was expensive, but it, they they kind of did something like that. But it had the round headlight on there. Yeah, that's yeah, that's. Um, I know what you're talking about. 21 inch front wheel. It, it was a pretty badass bike. I've I've seen a handful of them. There's somebody on Instagram that I followed that just beats the ever living shit out of his. So, kudos to that person. You know the other bike that I really liked, and this really shows you the the direction I've been going in my riding was that Earl bike that 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 yep. Ducati Scrambler build. Yeah. So that's the second year that bike's been at the show. It's yep. uh, Ducati the Alaskan, Scrambler 800, but they they uh, Jared Earl, who's a designer for Audi VW Group. Um. And he's actually a part of the design group for Ducati. He's done some stuff for them, too. Um, in fact, he made a bitchin' scrambler concept that you should check out. Really? Uh, we did it on the site a while back. Uh, looked really good. So this is kind of riff on that, where it's it's putting a 21-inch front wheel, longer travel suspension. It's like a proper off-road, you know, Dakar style for, for the, the desert sled. And he went and took it up to Alaska and did the things with it. And they did like a whole photo shoot. I think they did a movie. I think Revit was part of that as well. Yeah, yeah. And then this was kind of like a coming home for that bike covered in mud of like, hey, we, you know, last year we showed you this bike. It was like 95% done when we showed it to you. Well, we finished it. We went on an expedition and we came back and here it is covered in mud showing you like we can do the thing with it. Yeah. It's a cool build. I think it's awesome. I mean, you can buy just the basics like the the suspension and wheel conversion kit, which goes to right. a 21 inch and rear, uh, 21 inch front, 18 rear. A uh, little bit longer swing arm, but I mean, he's got a whole body kit that gives you much bigger fuel capacity and yeah, double double tank. I forgot that he was kitting that thing out. That's cool. That's cool. He's doing that. I, I would that would probably be my favorite bike in the show if I hadn't seen it last year. Yeah, you know, because it's That's such fair. a cool, it's such a cool build, such a cool concept. I'm wondering if he's going to do that for the 1100 for something with a little more power to it. I keep hearing things about 1100 scrambler, and then I mean, a lot I of those we'll parts, see. from what I understand, are interchangeable. So 
I can't imagine it'd be that much work. Yeah, it wouldn't be. Wouldn't He's be already done all the hard work. But yeah, that definitely, you know, a close number two for me is that one. Uh, what trends did you come away walking with? How do you feel? What's the zeitgeist of the custom scene looking like for you? It's looking like everybody is drawn to the affordable custom now. It used to be back in the day, the customs were these insane monstrosities that cost forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars because there was a lot of work getting into them. But it looks like the old, you know, sort of junkyard find custom is alive and well. You know, you, you noticed a lot of like mini choppers, you know, people buying these little 50cc, 125cc bikes and building them out. I, I actually kind of like seeing those. They were so full of character. And those, they were, like- those are super cool. There's uh, each one of those was very, very unique. But I was drawn to the mini virus. Dude, that mini virus was probably one of my, that was my third favorite bike there. <laughs> that thing was my, adorable. Our buddy Jonas took a picture of one with a beer can next to it just to kind of give you an idea. Of how yeah, because you wouldn't understand it. No, so it's, it's tiny. It's literally a pocket bike. Those little pocket bikes you see like little kids on or adults yeah. looking like a polar bear on a tricycle on. And they they did the Omega frame with the hub center steering. You know, they made it look. They put a lot of love into that. They put a lot of work to make that look just like the the big boy virus that. I wish there was a regular virus park next to it. That That would have made more sense. Yeah, then you could get the full the full effect. But that thing was. I saw that. I was like, wow. Yeah, that's rad. Um, one non custom bike that I got to see there that I've been dying to see, as you know, is the FTR twelve hundred. Yeah, oh, that's right. I must have climbed on that bike and off that bike and on that bike and off that bike about a hundred times. I. I think it's just as good looking in person as it is in pictures. That is a fucking handsome bike. So my opinion on this bike has been evolving. So I got to do something cool on Friday where um, Indian brought me down to the Salem flat track. Cool. uh, Speedway to do just kind of like some laps on a pre-production FTR 1200. Okay. Um, Me and a couple other journalists and influencer people. And that, it was a lot of fun. Like I've never done super hooligan stuff before. I've done a little flat track, but not a lot. I wouldn't say that's something I do very well. Um, so to get to go and do that on a big bike like that's a little intimidating, but it was a lot of fun because sure it was a big bike. You start realizing like Shaheen, like like the super hooligan thing's kind of coming on, the flat track thing's kind of on, but there isn't a production bike that you can roll out of the dealership and go straight to a flat track and no. ride. Except this Indian will be, and I was like, yeah. that makes sense. Like suddenly I was like, because we had like three or four of us out there, and like we're all having a hoot. I was like. Yeah, now I get it. Now I can see like a group of buddies who all have these bikes who meet up at the flat track, which is going to be like, you know, $20 at the gate to go ride. Yep. It's kind of thing. Just going out there and ripping because it, it did the it did the thing really well. It, it's a, I wouldn't say it's like a proper flat track, but it's pretty fucking close. And, you know, you could get on it pretty good. And we put it in like, we put it in rain mode and we turned traction control off. And it was huh. still way more of a handful than you think it could be. And I was like, man, this is, this starts making sense of why you come out with a bike like this. Like, yeah, okay, so it's fun to ride around the street. It gets you from point A to point B. It's kind of like a hyper motard in that sense of like, hey, it's just a fun bike to bomb around the right. city. It has a kind of like a, a weird use. But then you can take it out to the flat track and go with your buddies and, and squirrel around and, and get into trouble with each other. Don't know if I want to do that with a 500-pound bike, <laughs> but you could do it if you want it. Like, it's very capable in that regard. And, you know, they had one of their racers out there. They're super cool looking racers, uh, Jordan Graham, and he's giving us pointers. And he's a cool guy. And yeah, it was a really cool experience. Like it started making more sense to me. Where I was like, yeah, okay, I could see myself doing this. So like if I had a couple of buddies that were into super hooligan, we we're doing like our own little super hooligan or dirt quake or whatever it is. Like, yeah, this starts making sense. Yeah. I get it. I get it a little bit more now. I, I would I would absolutely love to spend a couple of days on that bike just to take pictures with it and just it's just such a it's one of those bikes to me that falls under like a, a 1989 Porsche Speedster. It just looks good to me. I want to be seen on it. I want to be on it. I want to experience it. I want to hear it. 
for no other reason just than it's just aesthetic sex appeal. It's one of the few bikes that I've seen in the last 10 years that made me go, oh man, I would love to ride that thing. It's just, it's very, it, it, it does something to me and it's just very emotional and I like that about yeah. it. Yeah. I saw a photo, um, Andy Debrino, who's a local racer yep. here, came in second, I should say, Saturday night. You sure did, uh, man. Super good with, race. A, with a shoulder that just got fixed like yesterday. Yeah, it's like hold, held together with like <laughs> hopes and dreams. Um, he did a bike for, I think it was for CC actually, painted up a bike and it looked really good. Like, you know, that's a bike that customizes well. That was yeah. a bike with, they did a good job of making that a very, um, I was going to say useful. That's the wrong word. What do, <laughs> adaptable? Adaptable? I don't know. It's a, it's a bike that fits. I feel like it's going to travel well. I feel like like whatever your personalization, whatever your little quirk is, right. like, that will be transcribed onto it very easily. I think that bike will age well, too. I think 10 years from now, the bike will still look good. I agree, because I think the core design or the core look of it has aged well. Yeah. I mean, that, that basic look is 50 years old. Yep. So. That's always going to be what a motorcycle looks like. If you have a kid who is five years old and you give him a crayon, say draw a motorcycle, they're going to draw something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the it is a core motorcycle. I, I I love that thing. Yeah, I think I think Indians. I think they've got a a good seller. I I still think it's an odd bike because it's it's not a direct comparable. It's not a direct lineup to anything else. It's going to create it's going to create a market. It's going to create a segment of its own this kind of uh, street tracker segment that right. really doesn't exist in the production side of things. Well, it's like the, it's like the hyper motard. There's no real segment. Not for really. It. There's like a couple other bikes, right? But not really. Um, yeah, it'll be cool. It'll be cool to see. I'm very intrigued. We're getting closer to, to that launch and, uh, I'll be very curious to see what the finalized version looks like. Awesome. Um, yeah, they had like four or five of them late, you know, just sitting there where anyone could climb on and off of it and check it out. And, Man, I, I I mean, I was surrounded by hundreds of custom bikes, and I saw that I made a beeline for it. Yeah. So I feel like that's going to be the thing, right? I think that's going to be a segment where, as Triumph has proven recently, these manufacturers are starting to listen and seeing where people want to quote-unquote customize. It's not truly custom, right? You're just basically taking parts off of the counter and adding it onto it and changing yeah. it and changing the wheels to make it your own motorcycle. But hey, that's going to be the average Joe's version because now you can buy a bike and throw a couple of extra thousand dollars at it, which is still a lot of money and make it sort of your own as opposed to a true custom bike that takes real talent, real grit, and real time to build. And yeah. a lot of people don't have that. There's a good line in the in the movie we watched, Oil in the Blood, about that's not customization, that's accessorization. Right. <laughs> You're like, yeah, okay, fair enough. It but is, I don't disagree. We're just talking about like standard deviations of the same thing. Come right. on. Um, it still has a warranty on it. It still fires up. It you know, the average the average American can fire it up and go ride it for the three hours they have in the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was really interesting. The cruisers still kind of dominate the show. That seems to be really central to the to the, the hipster bike movement, if you want to say. Yeah, the cruiser slash cafe um, racer. It was like 50-50, I thought. Yeah. Uh, I did like to see that there was the R18 uh, kind of prototype bike that, um, oh, what's the company? What's the, the builder that did that? Custom Works is on. Yeah, so it was the... Yeah. Um, how do I describe this bike? So this is a this this debuted in Japan. So uh, Customworks is on is from um from over the Pacific Ocean from us, but it was very interesting that BMW tapped them to show off this 1800 cc push rod boxer engine. So big, which is so big, so fucking big, it's so wide, dude. I don't ridiculous. think my arm span is that big. <laughs> it's such a big engine. Yeah, but the scuttlebutt is that's that's going to be the basis for like a heritage kind of play, right? Cruiser style bike from BMW, and so you know the CW Zon guys basically. I mean, it's a beautiful bike. The wheels are 
huge. Huge, but narrow. Super narrow. I think they did a really good job. It won a lot of praise and accolades. It kind of looked so. like an old flat, you know, like a uh, board board tracker motorcycle from right. like the you know, yeah, early 1900s. Yeah, it does kind of have a board tracker vibe Except to with it. an 1800cc boxer motor shoved in the middle there. You don't need a kickstand because you can just lean it over yep. onto the boxer yep. head to be fine. <laughs> um, I almost tripped over that motor, man. Dude, it just gets you right in the shins. <laughs> it's so big. It literally, we walked past it and stood there and I just pointed at it like an Austin Powers mole. I was like, it's so big. Look at the size of those boxer heads jesus yeah. wept look at that thing yeah so it's cool to see that um the cruiser vibe is definitely a little strong i don't know i don't know it's not my jam there's a lot of flat tracky bikes there's a lot of dirt bikes and i feel like that's indicative of kind of um you know the the appeal of you know flat track racing is really cheap and approachable it's very fan it's easy fan well, it's called the super hooligan yeah series right so that's the whole idea it's the spirit of the sport you're a hooligan you're a badass you've picked up this thing and took you know taken some weight off of it and now you're just riding around this dirt circle with your buddies and and tor you can see he's he's got the super hooligan race down in salem and people kind of you know have the one hour drive down there and then they come back up and they party and drink a bunch of beers and hang yeah. out with their favorite builder and yeah i get it i i don't i don't get it as in i want to do it but i get the idea i get the spirit of it i'm always i, I guess i put it I guess the reason I bring it up is I'm always a little bit torn if I even want to go to the one show when, when it's in town. Because obviously I'm going to. The industry's here. I want to see what's going on. It's a good pulse for the industry to see what's going on. But all the bikes are very vintage. All the bikes are very like how like it's the it's the hipster aesthetic, which which I don't resonate with as at all, even right. as you know, like a, a millennial. It's not my jam. I don't have this like identity crisis where I think I would grew up 50, 60 years ago. I don't have that at all. If anything, I wish I was born in the future where like we had laser beams coming out of our eyes. So you don't have tight pant jean pants that you roll up with your danners. I just don't even care what people wear. Like that's just, that's just like your own jam. If you want to wear like a wide brim hat or a fedora and skinny jeans, like you do you, I don't care. Ride a motorcycle. I don't care. But it's just like, that's so heavy. And some of that's the Portland scene. Yeah. But like, like if you think about it, the only really like modern looking bike were like the Earl bike and the Zero bike and mm-hmm. maybe one or two others. You know, Mark had his Ducati in it, and that's a present day bike. So I kind of like get lost. Like, like how many more stretched out choppers do I need to see? How many more like how many more rigid frames are they going to be around here? Yeah, how many more like I don't you think know, that style will ever go away. That's always going to be that thing that we hold on to as. My point is just like I just wish there was more diversity. Like it was funny one of the rooms had a few sport bikes. There was like a 1990s Gixxer. There was a Gamma. There was a Gamma. Dude, there was a Gamma. I was so happy to see the Gamma, which is which is rad. Uh, what else was sitting next to it? There was like there was like four or five bikes. Where I was like, oh, those are 1990s yeah. sport bikes. That's cool to see. But like the percentage of you know kind of modern, near modern, and then just kind of like retro. Like it's it's just really off for me. I was like, you know, I just wish there was more more modern flair a little bit more from what modern i understand touches. tour is a little bit kind of hardcore about that too you know if you have a bike that is more modern and you know if you have an 80 sport bike and you want to bring it in and it's super clean he really has to kind of like it has to be super unique like a gamma right you know you can't bring your 1986 jixer 1000 and expect it to get in there no, maybe that, that's but, my only that's my only critique where it's just like i'm just kind of truthfully i'm just tired of seeing raked out choppers yeah like i just don't care about them well, like I can appreciate people are the paying build. money to get in there on Saturday and Sunday still. What's that? <laughs> I said people are still paying money to get in there. So, yeah, no fair. I mean, like I guess it works, but you know, there there's no evolution. I guess is right. what I'm trying to say. And right. I feel like some of the bikes, like some of the bikes, truthfully, I'm like I've seen this bike here before. I've seen this bike here two, three times before. There's new blood out there. This is one of the biggest shows in the world. 
Maybe next year. Maybe. That's the thing, though. That's the thing with motorcycling that you and I always talk about. The 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 progression in motorcycling happens so slowly. There's a handful of us on the sidelines just with our hands up in the air going, hey, I'm tired of seeing this shit. Can you change it, please? I guess I guess my, my point is just like, I feel like the hipster thing is a finite amount of time. So I don't, I'm not even sure if we're, I think we already hit the peak of it, to be honest. <laughs> you know, so especially as like the mainstream brands kind of latch onto it. So it's one of those things where I sit there and it's like, hey, if you want to make sure this show like keeps on going, isn't just like a thing that happened in the, you know, mid, you know, 2000s or early, two, I guess if you look at a longer, longer time scale, early 2000s, because we're not even, you know, halfway through the century. Right. Um, maybe it should progress a little bit because it's going to, otherwise it's going to rise and fade with the, the hipster movement. Like at some point in time, like the raked out chopper thing's not going to be as big of a deal. The street tracker thing's not going to be as big of a deal. The cafe racer movement. You know, there's people like me that already think the cafe racer cafe racer movement is dead. Yeah. So how long are you going to keep beating that dead horse? That's my only critique. That's my only critique. I've seen a lot of really cool modern bike designers out there making really cool things. There was a there's... single electric custom. Right. And I heard a lot of talk about there being more and it, it didn't happen. But the fact that there was only there was there was two because there was an Alta dirt tracker That's kind the, of thing. Well, oh, I guess I didn't see the Alta dirt tracker. It was in the room of all the cruisers. Yeah, it belongs there. Hey, hey, you know, you got to be the sore electric thumb. Maybe that's where you'd be. So, but yeah, you're right though. Like the, the electric presence wasn't very strong. I know Energic has been working on stuff. Maybe next year. Maybe next year there'll be three instead of one. Maybe. And maybe we just need more more brands to, to, to come oh, into Honestly, the, when the Harley space. gets on board with this shit, you know, you're going to see a lot more of them. That, oh, that's a good point. That's a really salient So give it point. another year. Give yeah. it another year at the very minimum. Because you know I, Harley's going to be seeding that out. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. I guarantee you're going to see a Project Livewire parked right in the fucking entryway. Yeah. Shaheen, we got to get going, but I want to f- talk really quickly about Oil and the Blood, the movie we saw yes. on, what was that, Saturday night, Friday uh, night? Friday night. I'm the night's blur together. Yeah. So I'm going to give you my, my quick synopsis or my, my quick take. This feels like what, well, first of all, I should say what it is. It's it's a documentary style movie, interview style movie film that basically just takes a bunch of uh, high-level people in the industry and has them talk about the custom motorcycle scene. Yep. And for me, it felt very much of what Why We Ride, uh, another the film. The movie Why We Ride. The movie Why We Ride tried to be. But my perception of Why We Ride was very top-down. It was very corporate. There's mm-hmm. a lot of... Very honda There's a lot of industry money involved. Uh-huh. And it felt very top-down of like, hey, let's try to give you the hard sale on why you should become a motorcyclist. And fucking hey, the movie even ends with it, like basically being like okay so we told you how cool it was so let's all go to the lobby let's all you know <laughs> like they're the literally like telling you like okay so you watch the movie you're gonna go to your dealer now right because here's the dealer the dealer's there <laughs> there's a dealership in your area that's ready to take your money from it. You. you should go find your dealer google search motorcycle dealer you know it just felt like like at the end of the last 15 minutes of why you're right is basically like a commercial on why you should buy a motorcycle or 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 is a not a commercial it's a it's a hard sell it's like, why haven't you bought one yet? You should already be buying one. Why haven't you bought one? You need to buy one. We need you to buy one so bad. Whereas Oil in the Blood felt very bottom up, felt very grassroots. Like yeah. this is this is the story of the people that are involved. Now, I think the 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 film does a really good job of grabbing different voices from the industry that don't necessarily agree with themselves. So they, so it gives you a broader picture of what's going on. You hear, you hear one side's opinion and another side's opinion. And I did a, appreciate and a that person in the, the middle dual side of it. That being said, I still felt like, like they're very much in the hipster custom bike echo chamber. 
And that's kind of like it comes back to like when you see the scene where Tor's talking about like, oh, no, why would you charge a gate fee? <laughs> and you're like, you don't realize how absurd you're being when you say that. And, you know, sure enough, two, three years yeah, later, you're being bites you in the butt. And because like there was a point where I think like they were like, this is going to save the motorcycle industry. You know, we're saving it. And you're like, I'm not sure that's you're true. A niche part but of I 100 percent think you believe <laughs> that. Right. But I did like how it talked a lot about women in motorcycling. So it has like all these little segments that that tell different stories. And there's a good one about women. There's a good one about the ones that ones that really resonated with me was women in, coming into the motorcycle industry and this new generation of motorcyclists like saying, hey, this is like the millennial interpretation of motorcycling. Yeah. This is like, you know, this is our riff. You had your riff. This is our riff. And this is how we're doing it. And this is, you know, it's kind of latched onto the maker movement. And this is kind of like a passing of the torch. And I felt like, I was like, that really resonated well with me. Now I could have t- done with maybe forty five minutes of it. It's a two hour. It is a two movie. hour long. It's one hundred and thirty minutes. It's more than two hours. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that movie will do really well because it, they, he did a good job of doing like history and the differences and the different people that ride it and what's going to happen in the future maybe. And so I would love to see that thing get pitched to like Amazon or Netflix as a even a short series. Because I'd yes. love to see it broken down into 25-minute segments. I was told there's some plans to like at least segment it out, like put the different segments up on YouTube or, or an Amazon or Netflix or something like that. But YouTube is the name I heard. And I think that would work really well because, truthfully, I'm sitting there going, like, I hit, like, the 70-minute mark, 80-minute yeah, mark. Yeah, we still a little fidgety at the end there. And I'm literally like, all right, I got, like, oh, how long is this? I'm, like, pulling out my phone. I'm, like, I'm getting bored. But every segment is an interesting segment topic wise and what the people have to say is very salient and well said and from people i respect and i and i recognize i'm like yeah i want to hear what chris hunter from bike exif has to say yeah. i want to hear what miguel galusi from piaggio has to say i want to hear what roland sands has to say i want to hear what all these these different entities have to say because they're they're the guys that know they're the guys and women that know alicia elfing from moto ladies on there she's yeah, Alicia is. If you never met Alicia, she's she's an interesting person to talk to. She's a gregarious girl. But I'm sitting there going like, "Yeah, you're absolutely right. Everything, girl, you just said is absolutely right. Mm-hmm. We're spot on, spot on, Bevan." So there's great there's great insights there. It just gets lost in the fact that like after 90 minutes, you've lost my attention span. Um, yeah, it was a little. It was like you were right. It should have been at the very least two segments to kind of break it down. But I really think if he does it into a short uh, series. If he doesn't the source series, everyone really, really well, and, they can, and then they can kind of d- dive a little deeper in some of those subjects. I I want to know what was left on the cutting room floor because I bet there's so much gold that got left there just because of time yeah. that now you can explore it even deeper. There's I think what he stuff. said at the beginning of the movie was that basically there were 300 interviews. Yeah, I'll believe it. That's a lot, and I think that's the thing where like it just needed one more pass, and probably from someone else's eyes because there's a couple of the segments where I'm like, there there lacked a cohesive overall story. Yeah. And I think if you got rid of one or two, maybe three segments, it would have tightened it up. And like, oh, now I kind of get like the story that you're telling me in, in generality. You would have lost some really interesting stuff. But I, I can't even imagine the amount of energy it took to d- edit that. Dude. That many interviews, dude. that many points of view, that many different shots and that many. You did a great job of segmenting the music and in there. Piece and, them all together. Yeah. into like Because so, each segment works really well in, t- in telling a story. So right. having to find like this little 20 second snippet here and there from, from, you know, 300 people. Like yeah. you said, that's really hard to do. Um, I was really impressed with it. I think it's a must watch for anyone. In the industry. I loved it. And the director was such a kind human being. He was just taking questions and just hanging out with us. We bought him a drink afterwards. Good dude. Gareth. Yeah. Uh, Gareth did a, a, a really good job. Uh, Gareth Roberts. 
um, putting it together. Like you said, super nice, super nice guy. Right. Um, like seriously, like I think, I think that's a, a, a great, I keep coming back. It's what Wiry Ride wanted to be. It's what Wiry Ride tried to be, but was just too corporate. Where it's like this was this was a lot more authentic. This Exposed, was grassroots. Exposed a lot more truth. It had a little echo chamber thing going on. But like, if you were a non motorcyclist and you watched it, you might walk away and be like, "Okay, I yeah. get why, I get why you do that now. Yep. I understand why you ride." Huh? Huh? <laughs> so I think, and for me, that's like the ultimate test. I love the bits where the older hardcore tatted up. You know, just the real badass leather skin builders were the ones that were the wizened guys. They were saying, no, this shit's changing. And if you're going to sit there and say, I'm pissed off about a new so-and-so building a new so-and-so bike, go fuck yourself. It's dumb. Like, you have to accept this change and you have to accept that these are new people because you used to be somebody new in this industry once. Yeah, I think that's the thing. That's the topic that they wrestled with on... Uh, one of the segments that caught me the most was just this like new guard versus old guard and this right. passing the baton and the acceptance. And it's the same thing that you see like in comment sections. It's the same thing you see on websites like mine and, and on other websites. Like that's the struggle of like, this is something that's very much a baby boomer thing that kind of is skipping the Gen X generation. And now it's kind of up to the millennials to figure out like, how do you make it your own? And what's your interpretation of this? You live, if you're a millennial, you grew up in a completely different world than the baby boomer generation did yeah. you know like iraq war ii is our vietnam <laughs> yeah, really you know, like, like think about that there is no soviet union but we do have putin hacking elections <laughs> right. or um you know north korea nuclear crisis instead of uh you know cuba you know missile crisis and it's interesting like it's a completely different time like just from a sociological point of view from um an economic point of view like like just the amount of debt that that i as a millennial have versus the the typical gen x yeah you know motorcycles like it's it's totally different so it's cool to see that there's that exploration of how that's changing the motorcycle culture i enjoyed it i would probably watch it one more time just i feel like i missed a couple of things only because i'm a fidgety person i have add and yeah. you know being able to sit for two plus hours is very difficult for me. I'd love to be able to watch it at home so I can pause it, take a break, right. walk around the block, come back and, exactly. and do the thing. But I don't know how they're distributing this, Shaheen. I don't know if it's going to be on YouTube or Netflix or how I don't people, know. I'm how to other people are going to get it. to watch it. Yeah. But if you, if you, if it comes to like a theater near you or a motorcycle club near you, I think you should go see it. Go see it. Uh, if it gets put online, I mean, I'll be definitely making note of that on Asphalt and Rubber. So we were very lucky. And one of the things that you and I have talked about was dealerships making events happen where it's, you know, inviting people to come in and, and we did it. We got to watch it at a motorcycle dealership and that was kind of fun to sit there among your yeah. friends and among the motorcycles you love and watch a, you know, this thing at the end of the day on a cold day, there was 60 plus people sitting there watching this movie. There was standing room only. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Um, I think, and think well worth, like, I hope, I hope it's made available to like dealerships or clubs or, or local places. Uh, so, so others can see it like there's got to be a plan. I, I, I'm kind of kicking myself for not talking to Gareth more about how that was getting distributed because it needs to be. I think it's I bet if you reached there. out to him, he'd be open to talking to you. He's, he's, he seemed pretty open to discussion. Yeah. 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 So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, Shaheen, we need to grab dinner and then start our next podcast. I'm episode. so hungry. I know, right? Well, so, so the next time you hear our voices will be a week later, but in reality, it's just going to be 30 minutes for us. The magic of podcast editing. Yeah. So, um, 
What do we say to that, sir? We say safety third and make good choices. Yeah, good talk. I'll see you out there. Bye. Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. You, 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 you. Gotta. Today's. Today's episode's brought to you by Cody Kitty. Cody Kitty. Where the claws go, the kitten goes. Yeah. Cody Kitty. Ah! <laughs> Does that hurt, you bastard?